time I was two, they were calling me, calling me Satan. By the time I was twelve, I was killing, killing for Satan. Yes, my mother, she had problems too many of her own. She was young. Everybody's girl. Yes, she was. As a child, oh, I was cold. I was lost, so lost and lonely in a dark and godforsaken Did anyone give What chance did I have You're listening to Ink Studs, and this is the uh, Critics Roundtable. I haven't done one of these since uh, 2012, I think it was, um, and they're a lot of fun to do, but I kind of uh, slowed down doing it because one of our uh, uh, guests this week, uh, Joe McAuliffe, uh, along with uh, Tucker Stone, and, well, a lot, Joe, with some other folks, has doing a podcast called Comics Are Burning in Hell, which is uh, kind of does what this does. Um, but with all those bros talking together, so that's Joe with Tucker and Matt Seneca and Chris Montner. Um, fantastic podcast worth checking out. Uh, but this came out recently to kind of do it again because it is fun, and I think uh, an interesting list comes on. So we have Joe with us, who you can find yes. every Tuesday on the Comics Journal telling you what to check out and what to know about Japanese pogs from the 90s. Um, it's very uh, dictatorial. It, it's a... It's a important resource of finding out what's new in diamond related comic stores uh as well we're joined by tom spurgeon from the always excellent uh comics reporter uh tom is also um and i forgot his job title uh dude doing a lot of stuff for the cartoons crossroads columbus um in columbus october 1st to 3rd and this will be the first year and that'll be coming up 
I think a couple weeks after I post this uh, as well, Tom has his Patreon going on. Is the Patreon Comics Reporter or Comics Report? I both, kind of, to help me with the, the Comics Report, I guess. I, I don't know. Like if I Google Patreon <laughs> Comics Reporter or Comics Report. Comics Report is what okay. you probably should, should, should Google. Uh, and that'll be a uh, PDF version. Not PDF version, but a PDF uh, edition of um, kind of more exploratory uh, work related to what Tom's been doing with the Comics Reporter, but I think adding yes. a lot more depth and analysis. We're three weeks into it and already a month behind, so I'd like to, I'd like to congratulate myself on, on, uh, on, on a, a strong launch, and hopefully <laughs> no one will be too mad at me. Uh, this is... This is the way I started at the journal too. It's, only, it's the only thing I, I, it's the only defense that I have. I think I put out three issues in eight months, my first uh, time at the journal. So I'm going to get good really quickly. But yeah. So people, it's well worth checking out if you like, uh, you know, like excuses. You'll get some. There we go. Emails here in the next few few weeks. So. And last but not least is uh, from England, uh, Zainab Akhtar whose uh, Comics and Cola uh, website is a well-worth-checking out resource for uh, new and interesting work that Zena has been uh, reviewing and whatnot, as well as interviews with new and current creators. And you can find uh, Zainab on Patreon as well under Comics and Cola. Thank you, Zainab. Hey, am I supposed to say something at this juncture? You can say whatever you want. All right, I, I have nothing to say right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the process of doing these shows, uh, I ask everyone um, to choose some books. I realized uh, in the past we'd done two books each, and this time I said three books, and that's my bad for suggesting extra. Um, but this list uh, that you will see kind of coming out throughout the show um, was uh, developed uh, from each of the guests suggesting three books uh, for us to check out and talk. Uh, these are all current works. Um, they're interesting, and um, definitely there's stuff to say about each of them. I think maybe for the first one, I am going to go with... Let's talk about uh, Jason Shiga's Demon. Wow, okay. It's like I'm in law school. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I uh, actually picked, I mean, I had a lot of great possibilities. I was going to offer uh, 45 points of anticipation for Dark Knight, the Master Race, but then Robin told me it had to be a comic that actually exists, so I actually met us in the middle and chose a comic that is in the process of existing, which is Demon by Jason Shiga, and that is both a webcomic that exists, um, it, 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 it's updated very frequently on Shiga's website, but what it does is it deliberately lags behind the print edition of Demon, which uh, is available through Jason Shiga's patron account, yet another patron account. And it's very interesting because uh, through this patron account, which my perception at least is that it's very successful, maybe... Maybe Jason Shiga had expected $10 million a month, but it looks very successful to me. And um, what it's done is it's financed a, a genuine, continuing indie comic, self-published risograph uh, genre comic. And right now, if we're talking about like indie genre comics that are self-published, pretty much 
the ones that have stretched beyond like a couple obligatory issues and then the void is uh michelle fifay's copra which mm-hmm. has uh been running for 20 something issues now and jason's uh demon which is up to issue 16 right now all of them are little risographed books and uh like uh like his uh, great forebear, uh, Dave Sim of Canada, the, the Canadian patriot Dave Sim, uh, Jason Shiga has named the final issue of Demon, which will be issue 21. And when issue 21 is cleared, everybody who has backed the patron campaign will get a, a lovely slipcase in which you can store your, uh, your risographed comics and uh, you know keep them for future generations to burn when the economic collapse arrives. Uh, and just days before we did this podcast, we discovered that Demon has also been picked up by First Second Books, I believe, for a mm-hmm. uh, for a collected edition. I think Jason stated in the uh, there's a little back essay in the back of each of the Risograph books, and he stated in one that he deliberately calculated Demon so that it would be exactly one page longer in a collected edition than Craig Thompson's Habibi. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not a joke with Jason. He will specifically obsessively do that. Yes, yes, but then he later stated that um, in the process of making the comic, uh, he decided he wanted to add a lot more pages, so it's going to be a good deal longer than Craig Thompson's Habibi when First Second drops this uh, brick on our collective feet. And what's interesting is that unlike quite a lot of First Second's line, um, at least since, oh, back in the day when they were publishing Eddie Campbell and stuff, uh, Demon is actually a what you'd call a hard R project. It's, um, I mean, when I look at what Demon is, it fits into me with the idea that a lot of indie cartoonists, a lot of self-published cartoonists like Fife or like people like uh, Ben Mara or Chuck Forsman who release comics that exist to explore um, action comics uh, or, you know, thriller uh, mechanics of the sort. And what Jason, however, has done is kind of fit it into his own interests and I suppose uh, problem solving has been called an interest of his. Um, uh, basically people figuring things out. And in this way, Demon has a unique appeal. It's there, there, There's a very particular kind of narrative going on in Demon. It's a tight serial story. Uh, not that this matters if you're following the webcomic for free, which might be a good idea at first, but uh, different issues of Demon are actually different sizes depending on how long he wants a chapter to last. So one comic might be 60-something pages. Uh, one issue is actually only four pages long and contains a very big plot twist to make you gasp. But um, the narrative of Demon is set up in something I like to call the escape from the center of the earth. And what you do in the narrative that is the escape from the center of the earth is that you're in the center of the earth, and what you see is a, um, a line of rock, like, all around you. And you dig through the rock, and at that point, the plot is a very small thing, because when the main character uh, of Demon wakes up, he doesn't know what's going on, and it seems like he's dead. He's, in fact, suicidal and trying to kill himself. So he keeps trying to kill himself, and yet every time he does this, he seems to wake up alive. And he's wondering, wait, what, what, what's going on? And so that is digging through the first layer of sediment of rock. Then what happens is you break through that layer of rock and you reach another layer of earth, a much broader layer of earth. And in this way, the story broadens. So the character, not to give too many spoilers on this, but this is revealed in like chapter two or three or something, he discovers that... Uh, 
he has an ability to inhabit the bodies of other people. When a current body that he is in dies, he immediately leaps to another body, the one that is nearest to him. It's a bit like uh, an old Denzel Washington movie, the name of which I kind of forget. Following it might be. That might have been a Chris Nolan movie. But anyway, it, it, it's sort of like that. And so that's the next layer. And what happens is there's a lot of rules you have to figure out. So the character is calculating, well, it seems as if I'm that far from a body and I'm that far from another body. I go into this body. And part of the fun of the comic is discovering uh, the rules of the comic as you dig and as you go along. And then inevitably, once you've digged far enough, once you're digging upwards, you reach yet another layer of Earth that broadens the story again, which is to say there is a large uh, government interest and a secret history behind the demon program. It is a whole program of demons. And then it just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding, adding more and more and more rules. And the risk, of course, is that when you have dug so much, uh, layers of the Earth will start to collapse and bury you, which is to say that the comic will become encumbered by its own rules or it will stop making sense or or it will become deeply annoying. If there is, and I know it's a risky thing comparing one comic to another, one artist to another, I think when I talk to people about Demon, the one comic that always comes up is uh, Death Note, which is a manga that was drawn by uh, Takashi Obata. And um, Death Note operated in much the same way. It was a very, very, very popular uh, shonen manga for, you know, boys and people who aren't boys but read boys comics. Uh, that was in the mid-aughts, and it was about a kid who has a book that he could kill people with by writing their name in, and there's like a million, million rules about how you can use the book to kill people, and then there's his philosophy of how he wants to kill people, and then there's this detective who sits on his chair in a weird way, and he's sexy, and they have a sexy <laughs> library, and, uh, and then... And, and then there's other sexier or perhaps less sexy rivals that come in, and it, it just continues. And the thing about Death Note is I don't know of a lot of people who actually enjoyed Death Note for all 12 or 13 volumes for however it lasted because everyone has this one point where they're like, oh, fuck Death Note, you know? It, it just gets too encumbered with information. There's a plot twist they don't like. They kill off the wrong character, and they're like, ugh, forget it. And that is... The game, the type of narrative that Demon is playing, really, it's a very fundamental shonen manga, uh, whether it's intentional or not. I think it's a very, very uh, typical shonen manga um, approach that Jason Shiga is using to this comic because... Um, it has this story that keeps expanding. Every so often you learn new things, you learn new things about the world. And when you're doing, you know, a commercial manga that's going to be serialized in a weekly magazine for, you know, maybe the better part of your adult life, you come up with different tricks that you can use to extend the life of the storyline. Like, uh, when in doubt, have a fighting tournament where everybody fights each other. Uh, and Shiga is doing basically the same narrative device, but he's using it as a means strictly to uh, create suspense in as constricted a manner as possible. He's using this in a very tight space and for, I think wisely, a very limited amount of time where the story will end at issue 21 uh, to use that to, to keep the reader desperately ripping through new issues and anticipating the new issue and importantly not stop backing him on Patreon because once you stop backing him, you stop 
getting the comics and you have to wait for the web comics. So in this way, I think uh, even more so than his contemporary, Shiga is being very canny in a way about structuring this, uh, this journey into genre comics. He himself has referred to it as basically a superhero comic. In fact, there's so much violence in Demon and so much gross out, weird, like, uh, stuff. It, it, it's almost like a Mark Miller comic who is behind, uh, such, such world classics as, uh, the Angle M nominated Wanted and, uh, Kick-Ass and stuff. It's, it's not actually that far removed from a comic written by Mark Miller and that it's very, very, very eager to be shocking and sensational. Uh, the fact also, however, is that it's drawn in Shiga's very particular, extremely cartoony. I think uh, it has a very good sense of space where he can delineate where characters are standing in space. Uh, but still, I, I think the cartooniness of uh, the lightness of Shiga's art sort of... Uh, I guess, rescues this in a way. I mean, maybe the people who are following this comic wouldn't really care anyway, but if, like, Steve McNevin was drawing this comic or something, it, would, it wouldn't it would be unbearable. I'd totally be able to bear it. But uh, uh, I think it would... Well, I mean, on one hand, I think it would be a, a hit image comic. It would also be on issue three, and uh, the, the violence would hit in a much different way than it would be when Shiga's kind of doing it in his rather... Uh, I think... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In his very very cute style. It's very cute violence, which I think adds a level of distance. It's, which it's is a, not as horrifying as it should be. It adds a level of distance, which I think is appropriate for the plot, because mostly what Demon is about is figuring things out, about characters trying to outwit each other and figure out all the rules of living as a demon and becoming the ultimate immortal and destroying your enemies, and keeping the reader aloof in a way almost places them in parody with the very aloof, emotionist, rather nihilistic characters that populate Demon. It's a very, very nihilistic comic, I think, in the end. And I also fundamentally think if you lift the uh, hood of this comic, what you find is a humming engine, and maybe not a lot else, because it's a plot machine, and it's, you know, it's a straightforward work of genre mechanics. But I think it's one that works very well, unusually well, on both uh, an economic and an aesthetic level. Did uh, anyone else actually read this comic? Say that. Yeah, I read it. Um, I read the PDF that Jason sent. As I started reading it, I think was it last year he started it, and yeah, yeah. I, I really liked it initially. Um, like Joe saying, because it's like it's just about the initial problem about why is he, why can't he kill himself? Why does he keep on waking up? And then I read the rest of it, and it just sort of like. It's really pacey, it reads really fast, but it sort of lacks any sort of like emotional resonance. It doesn't have, it's sort of like all the elements are just sort of like floating about and I don't know, it doesn't feel connected to anything. So like even like when they jump forward in time and everything like hundreds of years, they're just yeah. sort of like, you, you don't feel the impact of that at all. Yeah. And uh, there, I, there's no change in like any of the scenery or how that affects him. It's just like briefly, oh yeah, I've lived so long or whatever. And they just carry on, and it's just sort of, you know, still about that problem about, you know, about outwitting each other. So, and that's, yeah. that's kind of a thing with uh, some of Shiga's other work. I don't know if you ever, is it Meanwhile, where it's basically a choose-your-own-adventure, and every story, every possible thing, except for one, I think, ends with you yeah, dying. Yeah, it's, it's the same in, in, in Fleek, and also in the, the librarian comic he did, which I can't remember the name of, Book Hunter. Yeah. Um, it's always about sort of like math problems and it, I think this sort of like similar that they start off really, they start off well and they sort of like 
they grab your interest, but then it becomes about the math and about the problem solving, and it can get quite technical, and it sort of loses me when it does that, because I don't know anything about math, um, <laughs> and also I'm not interested in it, and it becomes all about, oh, like, X and Y, and, and, and remember, Philippe was really, oh, well, this telephone box is, like, this tall and this high, and, and I was like, hey, you know, you don't care about that, I don't think you care about that, it becomes about the problem, and it becomes less about the story. Tom? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no. there are a couple of things. You know, I think this is the Shiga book that a lot of us thought he would eventually do in a, in a way in that it kind of transfers his game solving, his puzzle elements away from like an overt puzzle within a narrative to making the narrative the puzzle. I mean, that's really a facile kind of easy thing to say, I guess. But I, I kind of think it's true. I mean, I think it, I think it kind of I mean, it's. It, He's always he's, the characters are involved with the conventions of their own story, and I think that there's a couple of interesting things that come out of it because one is that you have this parallel thing that goes on in the story, where or at least later on in the story where they start to apply the same kind of games gamer logic to life, you know, as life is like a, a collection of experiences, yes, a collection of happy experiences, which is really dark. That's a really dark, dark place to go. Which I thought was which I thought was um, interesting, but I also think the fact that that the the way that the story works that you're constantly trying to figure out this game, the story itself, you're trying. To, I think that is part of what turns the characters into ciphers, mm-hmm. and is also kind of a, a kind of a satirical point he may be making. You know, the other thing that always you know that sometimes gets left out with Jason is that he's. He's really funny. He's like he he is like the the whole thing is kind of furiously um, mean and funny and over the top and self aware to a I think an appealing an appealing amount of self awareness that it's actually fairly to me the books are fairly entertaining even after I lose interest in the gamesmanship kind of like I, I think Zanab was talking about where I don't. The, it, it just becomes, the ride just becomes the ride for me. I kind of opt out of the puzzle solving as I get bored of it, but it's still, it's still appealing to me. I also like the way that a lot of, he uses a lot of, for for someone that has a, like a limited, or that's using a limited style, for all I know, he has some gorgeous style that he's holding in reserve somewhere. But, you know, for someone who uses a, a kind of a primitive limited style, he does get a very good, a very, um, there's a, he does communicate like motion and action very well, a, a lot by the use of like white space and limited panels on the page. And it's so I think it's very um, a lot of ingenuity in the way that he tells his story with these kind of limited means. So I, I'm, I'm kind of interested to see where it ends up, because I mean, I think there's a chance that it could come around in the end to be a kind of um, I don't know if he sticks the landing. I think I will like. I think I will like the work a lot more than I do now mm-hmm. because I think there's an opportunity to really, I don't know, to say something about that whole approach to life where you're figuring out narrative tricks and you're figuring out and you're approaching it as a, as something to be solved rather than something to be experienced. And if he, and if he sticks that landing, I think it'll be a, a really interesting book. Well, right now it's just like, it's a really interesting comic and a lot and just kind of these, 
all these, but well, I don't know. We'll see if it all comes together, or at least I'll, I will see if it all comes together. Because um, I, you know, it's it's kind of my own personal reaction to the book. But yeah, he's always been super interesting, and I think this is kind of, I think the way reason people are reacting to it is because it just, it kind of makes the whole thing. I don't know. It's kind of next level, right? I mean, that that he's he's turning the whole book into the problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. I've, uh, uh, oh, go on now, Robin. No, no, that was you, Joe. Go ahead. Uh, all right. No, I'd, um, I, I, I would definitely agree that, um, certainly I've never been, uh, confused as to what's going on with, uh, Shiga's style in the book, which I, I think was, uh, Terry Grostein's definition of good comics art, that you're never confused by what's happening from one panel to the next. Um, I, I do find it kind of interesting some of the tricks he uses with the style in that um, it, it's a very broadly cartoon style that I think um, that I think reduces characters basically to um, character types where you can sort of uh, divine their uh, intentions and their emotional interiority by how they look. Like, you know, a girl has big wobbly eyes and you can tell she's at least supposed to be um, you know, a very naive, innocent girl. Uh, later on, this is sort of perverted to weird ends where the girl um, it basically remains a little girl, but also kind of becomes Kirsten Dunst in Interview with the Vampire, not to give out too many spoilers. But I find it very, very interesting that it's not a style that really, um, that really like, um, reveals a lot about ethnicity or race. And yet, at a few points in the comic, uh, I believe the main character states that he's an Asian man. And when you have a style and you're working like that and you have a character state that through dialogue, it becomes particularly meaningful in a way that I think um, Shiga is making a gesture that this sort of really berserk, you know, uh, nothing held back hard R action comic could star, you know, an Asian character, which is not the kind of, at least in North American made comics, is not the sort of typical idea of a... uh, an anti-hero of this sort. I think the default is not along that sort of line. No. So I think I think he gets some interesting mileage out of his very cartoon style and what the um, story is actually saying in those ways as well. And I, I'd also say uh, what Zanab mentioned, uh, a time skip where you jump a bunch of years in the future is the most fucking shonen manga thing you could ever do. <laughs> Um, I'm going to move us on because we have a, a big list. Um, yeah. uh, Vacancy, another Patreon uh, funded creator, uh, even though Vacancy wasn't funded by Patreon. Uh, Jen Lee, uh, she also does the very marvelous webcomic Thunderpaw. Um, Vacancy, I think, is her first in print book. Um, no Brow published. Came out, what, a month ago, I guess? Something like that. Beautifully drawn. I'm a big fan of Jen's stuff. Um, her uh, Thunderpaw is just one of the most phenomenal webcomics I've ever read. Um, and Vacancy kind of feels along the same way uh, with those much moving pieces. Um, would it, who wants to jump in first? Should I go? Because I chose it. Sure. Right. Um, so Vacancy is set in the same world as Thunderpaw, which is sort of like Genevieve's, um a post-apocalyptic comic um featuring all these dogs and there's been some sort of like huge event and it's implied that the hu- that this world used to be inhabited by humans but you've never shown any and they've all been wiped out but the nature of the event is never really explained um 
so this is set in the same world, but it is a standalone story. It doesn't feature the same characters. It's different, and it's about a young dog um, who is a tame dog, and he's called Simon. And post um, to post this event, he he's sort of like obviously he no longer has any owners, and he doesn't know how to get food, and he's been waiting and waiting for something to happen. So he eventually decides that he, he needs to go out in the into the wild, in the woods beyond his garden, to um, to sort of like fend for himself. And he thinks that this is the next step. This is what he has to do, sort of thing. Um, I think I already wrote about this, but I sort of like I think the first time I read it, and I was like, oh yeah, this is good. I mean, I really like Jen's work anyway, and I really like Thunder Paul, which I think is amazing, and um, I like what she does with sort of like the animation. It feels it can feel like really stressful and anxiety inducing and um she does that with the sort of like all the motion and the gifts which is um which works really well for her um but i i sort of kept on coming back to the narrative because i, I like the way it's sort of about expectation and pressure and the way it dealt with you know like simon ha- simon thinks that being wild he's a dog so it's his nature to be wild and he thinks it's going to be a really easy thing just to go into the woods and just to sort of like it, you know, it is who he is, and that he's, it's just all going to be fine. And obviously, it's not. Um, and I, I just sort of really appreciate like the presentation of that. Like, it's like a failure because it doesn't work out. And his learning experience that you, you, that something might not be right for you in that moment, but or ever, and that that's okay. But you can still try. Um, so. Yeah, I really like that, and it, I really like the way she draws. Like, there's lots of panels where the, ca- the the characters aren't shown. There's no feature. It's just sort of like you just get all this like debris mixed with sort of like natural environments, and um, so you get sort of like an upended plane tail which has crashed, and it sort of obviously you can tell it's been a while. So like there are tree branches growing out of it, um, and it really helps sort of like set the scene. Um, I really like the tone and the atmosphere, and I, I like the way she does sort of like. Anthrop- um, and she's sort of like she has like all her dogs and her wolves and her deers and raccoons and they're all wearing sort of like very distinctive they have a real sense of style like they have glasses and hoodies and little socks and even sort of like even fur coats there's one there's one character who's wearing like one of those you know ridiculously big feathered coats which I found quite <laughs> amusing um, because he's already a furry, so to speak. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I kept coming on to it. It's sort of like I think you can read it in two different ways. Like the way I read it was as as a learning experience and just sort of like realizing that what what you expect from yourself is not necessarily where you're at at that time. But like more cynical reading of it could be like when when it gets to the ending is that you know you like you have to stick to what you know and it's sort of closing yourself in or closing yourself off from certain experiences because you decide that, you you know, you're not capable of them. So I think it, it reads really well, but it reads, I think it reads well, you know, on, on on second reading and maybe a third reading as well. And I really love her, like, sense of colour is really amazing. And it's a really good-looking comic, but I also think it can be quite visceral in parts. Like, there's, there's, she does these panels where um, I think he eats, he eats, um, he digs up some meat from the wood, and it's sort of disgusting. He eats it; it's all like bloody and raw. And then he gets sick, sick from it. So like, she draws like wobbly panels, and he's getting like sicker and sicker. 
like and it shakes. So yeah, I think I thought it was really interesting, um, and especially coming from Mel Brown because I think they had a, a bit of criticism saying that they didn't publish female writers or something. Mm-hmm. Um, is what I heard, or they didn't publish certain styles, and I think that's obviously if that is true. I don't know to what extent that's true, but like they're progressing from that. So it's really cool to see her being published by Nobel as well. Tom, did yes. you, did you get a chance to read Vacancy? I did, you know, and I, I'm not familiar with Thunderpaw, so it for me I was trying to figure out kind of the 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 I just kind of try, I was trying to figure out the the degree or the the tone or the um um the nature of the overriding metaphor that anthropomorphic comics sometimes bring, or if there was one there. Mm. And, you know, what it reminded me of, this, the narrative reminded me of, like, kids. It just reminded me of, like, I, you know, I, I, that you just, the way that kids will circulate around a neighborhood or, uh, uh, you know, and, and confront various levels of, of danger um, and have reactions. <laughs> it's the Larry Clark movie, Tom. Yeah, I mean it's it's but it's it's darker than that. But it, that's I mean that's what it reminded me of at its core. It just reminded me of you know because you kind of have these when you're a kid you kind of have this knowledge that there are these kid you know there's a group of kids that are a little tougher than you and then there's a group of kids that are very much tougher than you. So I was processing it that way for some reason. I think just because I you know, it's something about the way the anthropomorphics are drawn were drawn kind of suggested younger people to me or the way that that tool was used. But I, you know, like I said, like Zainab said, it's very pretty. It's very, it's very, and it's a, it's um, a fully realized aesthetic, if that makes sense. It's like, it's, it's there. It's like, it's not, it, it is, a, a, she's very comfortable with it. You know, that, that's, that's the way that these books are going to look. And that's, it's not some, it's not an in progress kind of look. Mm-hmm. And I like those kind of myths. I mean, I like those kind of there and back again stories. I was certainly intrigued. I'm happy to find out there's more set in that world. But yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was really, I thought it was interesting. I didn't, what I couldn't figure out is I couldn't figure out, you know, I couldn't figure out the context kind of, or why a side story would be interesting now that I know that it's a side story and how it might relate to the overall, if it does, I don't, I don't know. So I, would, I, I was left, I was left a little bit, a little bit confused after my read through, but I'm um, certainly, I certainly enjoyed it. It's certainly well done. I wouldn't say side story as much as like same world. Okay. So like this is a story that takes place in, you know, one city and Thunderpaw takes place in another city, but they're both dealing at the same time. That makes sense. Sure. Yeah. The, I think the older you. Um, like the central theme that they share is that there's dogs in it and that it's a post-apocalyptic scenario and that's it really mm-hmm. um, Joe I thought it was a very nice comic it's uh, it's very nicely structured as a small comic I believe it was um, published as a slightly oversized uh, soft-ish cover comic is that accurate i don't think it's like a hardcover album right no no it's just uh one of the nobrow things they're doing now where it's like the size yeah close like, to the size of a comic with nice french flaps and yeah 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 that's um i i think it's well suited for that uh kind of presentation both because the the colors are very very lush and kind of uh complement the uh uh, this, that sort of presentation really well, and also because you know the story is pretty 
well tailored for that sort of uh, small scale experience. I uh, I actually kind of saw the whole thing as it's like um, it, it's like different levels of characters performing for each other almost. In that the uh, the little dog character who meets the other um, characters who kind of seem tough but are and you know are tougher than him at least but are also ill prepared for the life outside it's like um you know they they they're like a little pair of uh of a uh, deer and fox crust punks that sort of exist on the streets but there's limitations to how it could work it's um it's like i mean it, it's the kind of thing you'd see in like i mean this is really really getting out there a little but it's almost like something you'd see in like a dell comic with like animal characters it's it's obviously done in a different um in a different style and that there isn't so much narrative going on and there's a lot of atmos a lot more atmospherics than would actually occur in the in a comic from the 50s or 60s or certainly not a british comic from the 50s or 60s which would have narration in like every panel but um i i, I think it's the same kind of kind of sort of very very basic and direct story that it's telling that has a lot of i think immediate applicability to maybe the reader's situation it's um it's very tight in that way it's a tight work uh do either of you have a sense of of where this fits in as as a as a no-brow book i mean is there a no-brow aesthetic or a no-brow overall writing kind of interest or corner of the market I'm going to say I, it's the Tucker Stone aesthetic. No, 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 no. I immediately associate No Brow with very, very lush coloring, very, um, very cartooned yet illustrative, uh, cartoon illustrative uh, art, which I think this comic, uh, you know, displays quite nicely. So something that, that doesn't necessarily read stiffly, but also could probably be expanded to illustrate an article in a New York magazine or something, and something which very with very high production values, which in, in case you haven't figured out, I read a PDF of this, but I'm assuming the production values are very high. So I, I see no brow basically in that way. Very lush would be the word I would rely on. I find it a little maybe more... Um... I think of the right term, like populist, than maybe some of the similar no-brow type stuff. Like this seems like a lot uh, easier to get into work um, than this similar format no-brow works like this. So is there is there like a group? Or is there like is that like a group thing? Is there an editorial mandate? Is there a overriding personality with no-brow that would kind of dictate these things? <laughs> I just like being dumb. I like to get dumb. I'm not acting dumb. I'm actually dumb where this company is concerned. What is oh. the? Is there? Is it? Is this someone's tastes that are being reflected in the same way that you know 1990s drawn and quarterly reflected Chris Oliveros's? Well, taste? there's two. There's two guy. Two main guys with no brow. Um, and I think there's a bunch of money behind uh, pushing their particular aesthetic tastes. Um, I think uh, the Hilda books. Or kind of their their staple of okay. Pierce and stuff, which is kind of similar to what to vacancy a little bit in that kind of style. Um, I mean, not that I know any more than you, Tom, but yes, I do think there is a strong level of personal preference in the books that are uh, in the way these books appear and the kind of books that are chosen. Do, do you think that of, of it as a cohesive line, Zainab? Do you think of it as kind of? I mean, do you think? Of, do you, are there books that you recognize as no-brow books? Um, yeah, I think they definitely have sort of like a house style, um, but I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. 
um, because lots of publishers have a house style that they don't really move beyond. Um, but, and you know, I like the house style. I actually don't think this fits into it strictly. Um, I think it's sort of like, it's more cartoony and it's sort of, it's, uh, yeah, like, was it Robin Hood saying it's more populist? I think it's probably leaning towards that. So I see, I see this sort of like as an effort, you know, of them making, you know, moving beyond mm-hmm. um, what, what, what they normally associated with. Okay. Um, they, they sort of like focus on very on like graphic art and or you know very cartoony styles, clean styles, clean cartoony styles. Um, I think they had a sort of like I don't know if you remember or even came across like um, when they were they had a statement up on their website about open submissions and they got a bit of criticism for that because they were saying like oh we don't want any manga styles and you know it wasn't it wasn't a hundred percent well worded. Um, I think about okay. quite often like whether publishers should stick to a house style or whether they should move beyond it because you start publishing all these certain type of work. So because you do that well, should you stick to it or should you try and, you know, expand and broaden your horizons? Because I have the same problem with sort of like Jonathan Cape here who publish a lot of like memoirs and a lot yeah. of this sort of like very mm-hmm. middle class, um, you know, it's very sort of like arty sort of like folksy style and it really grates on me. <laughs> And uh, they don't really, and they have like a, a guardian, they're associated with a guardian, they run a competition every year where um, it's supposed to be an opportunity, in inverted commas, um, for British cartoonists to be sort of like, you know, they get, a, I think there's a money prize involved and they get the comic published in the guardian and then more often than not, they'll get a, a book will be published by Jonathan Cape. Um, and it's always the same sort of style that they end up winning um, you know that sort of like Stephen Collins, um, Isabel right. Green style, yeah. um, which they come. I think they get quite a bit of flack for, but you know nobody really gives a shit, and they carry on doing it. So yeah, I don't know, but. All I do is dream of you.
I guess the next book we're going to talk about is uh, one of uh, Tom's picks, um, Flop to the Top. Um, Tom? Yes? Why, why did you choose this wonderful book? A couple reasons. One is because... A few reasons. One is because we talked about a tune book last time that we did one of these uh, critic roundups, so I wanted to connect to the past because I'm a sentimentalist. Um, I wanted... To, I think that's an interesting line of books, um, mostly for the fact that people seem to either take to it or, or kind of not take to it at all. Uh, at least that's the conventional wisdom in the rumor department, is that some people really like the process of working really hard to um, have their, the words that are used in the story measure up to exacting educational standards for age groups, mm-hmm. and some really dislike that process. And um, I think it's a really pretty book, and it's by um, Eleanor Davis and Drew Wang, Wang, um, who are two very interesting cartoonists. It's also a children's book, which I think is an interesting category right now. And I also am interested in that um, it's a children's book uh, on a topic that Ike would not have had a children's book when I was a child which is about kind of the kind of insta celebrity and jealousy and um, media, which weren't exactly uh, Dr. Seuss approved subjects back in my day. The Berenstein Bears never went to, uh, you know, hang out on Twitter for a while. And this book kind of touches on those subjects. So I thought all of those things were sort of interesting and it's really pretty. I like the fact that it's a good looking book and I like, I, and I, most of the books I've liked from that line are attractive, are, are, are on the more attractive end of it, um, are from real um, people that know how to make a good-looking, visually stylish book, which I wonder if it's a way that you kind of, de- not deal or not even really compensate, but if that's an area you can focus on that it's not maybe as restrictive as some of the language requirements. I don't know. But... I liked the book. I thought it was really cute. And uh, I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a category that's here to stay. So I want to continue reading comics like this and try to figure out comics like this because that's where, that's where the next generation of readers coming, are coming from. Probably not as much as, you know, like you know, <laughs> bad uh, uh, Justice League stories or whatever I was reading when I was a kid. So... I'm not sure what, how my mind would be shaped if I got to read Eleanor, if I got to look at Eleanor Davis drawings when I was five years old. I don't know. Did you guys like it? Mm-hmm. I did. I did enjoy it, Tom. Um, I got. <laughs> I gotta say, when I read through this, um, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. It's, you know, it's about a little girl who's trying to be a social media sensation, and then. Uh, Unbeknownst to her, um, her dog is actually the one who becomes a social media sensation, leading to much comedy and angst, and in the end, a affirmation of friendship in the great tradition of children's books. Uh, to, to be perfectly honest, I saw this as uh, a, almost of a piece of that uh, rather controversial James Sturm comic that came out on the internet a while ago. I, I honestly read the whole thing, and I realized these things could be read as different ways, but I read it as almost uh, a parable of professional jealousy, um, which is to say somebody who's trying to do something that they're not entirely good at and becoming just comedically and rather delightfully upset at somebody else who they 
who they don't really see as being as prepared for this sort of fame or infamy or success as they are. And, you know, it, it, it comes together with a nice, a nice lesson at the end with the girl and her dog reunited. And, uh, you know, she learns an important lesson about being nice to others. And may, maybe that James Sturm comic would have been better received if it had ended in that way. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I just found it really amusing and pleasant. The, the drawings of the dog were very funny, especially when the the dog is like dancing and the little girl like there's this whole scene of I think double page splashes where uh the girl is like literally chasing this dog through his life of celebrity and like the dog's you know like on a yacht and he's like he's like in a club and the girl's like you can't even dance you're a dog and um you know it, it really it really says a lot uh meaning wise my, my all-time favorite uh tune book I have to throw in a plug is um the Philippe Caudray books of Ben Similarly, about hilarious animals doing wacky things, and that's that, that's kind of like almost a Dell comic where it's just you know set up and and drop them down gag stuff, multi-paneled stuff. I think the Davis Weiring book is more uh, it's almost more in the lines of an illustrated children's book that happens to have uh, dialogue bubbles on it because it's it's so heavily like washed through with like full-page drawings or drawings kind of melting into other drawings it's uh it's quite sophisticated in uh in towing the line between i guess children's books as you'd know a children's illustrated book and uh comics themselves which maybe maybe fits the uh demographic and marketing position of good old tune books a little better than uh than benjamin bear does but regardless i thought it was quite fun and amusing zena um I liked it. I thought it was okay. Um, I really like the art. I think that's really gorgeous and really nice to look at. I think the aspects of it that I sort of couldn't take to, one was sort of like, you know, the whole subject matter of like social media status. And, you know, that I just, I feel like I'm so tired of, you know, all these sort of um, takes and I don't of internet validation and the whole sort of like online culture and I don't I don't know how sort of relevant it would be to a child I don't know that just seems sort of discordant to me um and I'm not in general I'm not really a fan of sort of like books with over teachable moments I always feel like this <laughs> sort of like you know really sort of in your face I I just like you know that this is what you will take from this book or you know this is a lesson about friendship or and I don't know, I, I, I understand it's for children, so obviously that's, I, I, but I like that children are, you know, more sort of like nuanced than that. Um, but yeah, it was pleasant, you know, there was nothing offensive about it, but that was sort of like, that was the main takeaway that I got from it. Let me, I have a couple of follow-up questions I'd like to ask both of you guys, um, which is one, you know, it, it occurred to me when they, when Robin said who he was trying to get to do this, that I've been writing about comics since it was like stone tablets. And uh, we, we painted them on a cave somewhere and hopefully people came and saw them. And Joe, I think of you as a um, kind of a first generation internet guy, kind of columns and websites and things like that. And Zainab, you're even newer than that. And I wondered if, if all of you are kind of adjusted or accommodated or um, how, how whatever word is, is most appropriate there to kind of the social media aspect of what you do. Because it seems like that drives almost all reading now 
of any type, even though all of us may prefer to write, you know, the longer essays and the longer criticisms, I'm not sure that we have much of an audience, or I'm not sure that I have much of an audience anyway, unless I point at, you know, do like point, use Twitter to point out that it's there or use Facebook to point out that something I wrote is there. And I wondered how you guys negotiate that or how, if that's ever annoying to you, or if you think that's healthy for kind of critical discourse that you have to have a social media presence in order to even be on stage, it seems like now. Do any of you think about that kind of thing? Well, I do think about that, but that's, uh, that's because, you know, I have to acknowledge that the internet has given me basically everything and that if I didn't have the internet, I'd have, A, probably never tried to write about things in a nonfiction manner. I'd have stuck to the uh, uh, extremely good steampunk fiction I was writing as a 19-year-old. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, yeah, I, I don't think I'd have ever wound up, you know, writing for magazines or anything if I didn't start writing things on the internet. So in a way, I, I respond, I guess I'm of the generation that responds still on a, on a fundamental basis to the internet as the idea of not having gatekeepers around and allowing people who aren't maybe, uh, necessarily that academically or work experience qualified to attempt to do things and learn in public. Uh, I mean that in the idealistic sense. I think today uh, that kind of flows into uh, discussion about comment sections as been used for abuse or just the general lowering of standards. Um, but, you, you know, I, I'm I'm old enough, always getting older, Tom, that I, I still kind of respond to that on, I guess, from the, the idealistic, almost utopian perspective. I think nowadays uh, you can't really do the sort of I mean, you could, but it's not really encouragable to do the sort of, you know, personal blogging that I started out with. I mean, Zainab basically does that, and she does very well with that because I think she's very good at that. But I think there's a definite drive in the past five or six, maybe seven years for a consolidation for people working in a group efforts, um, which is something I've always been ambivalent towards because when you do that, your, you know, your work is inevitably judged by whatever extremes or mistakes that anyone else in that group makes. Like you're never, I mean, you're a person when you write for, say, the Comics Journal, but you're always going to be judged by whatever the Comics Journal has done in the past or whatever it acts uh, in doing uh, as judged by somebody who does something that is less advisable. So I always have that kind of that kind of Steve Ditko thing in the back of my head for I think that you should just be, if you're on the internet, you should just be doing things for yourself, even though it's evident that that's going to greatly limit you in terms of exposure. So yeah, th th those are things I think of, you know, pretty much a lot. But fundamentally, Tom, I guess I don't really care about being super, super popular or anything, as I think is uh, reflected in much of my output. Yeah, I think about it a lot as well. Um, sorry, Tom, did I interrupt somebody? No, I was just gonna. I was just hoping that you would have something to add. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was gonna say like, I don't know. Um, I think that it it, it definitely sort of like changes the discourse of like the way you discuss things. Like, I find that people don't um read you know longer pieces or read blog blogs or review like although people do read it, but you know a very small amount compared to like how many people will respond to say if you tweet about a book. Um, I don't know whether because it's shorter or it's just more accessible or because it's just so, I guess, so so much more direct than, you know, saying linking to pieces. Um, so 
you know, and I, I, I think, I think I find that weird to be honest. Um, you know that I don't know because as a as a person, I always prefer to engage with something that's you know hopefully more well thought out and um, you know more thoughtful and you know I don't know more engaged rather than just you know a tweet that says hey this book is good or whatever um, without going all jeet here about it and starting numbering and you know essays <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, but yeah I don't know I mean I yeah I do sometimes like I feel pressure that oh you know if I have like the more followers I have, like the more perhaps people read the blog, but I don't, I don't really find that that's the case. Um, but if I could choose, I would have like people obviously read the pieces that I've taken time over and, you know, like, I mean, I don't write them so much for anybody in that I write them for myself, but obviously I would still like for, for them to be read. But, um, yeah, I mean, but yeah, it's just, I guess it's all a matter of how you engage with it because like, I, increasingly like I'm just I just sort of like something I've been really really considering like seriously is that whether I even need to have a Twitter because I just feel like it's I don't know it's grown so much more like it doesn't do anything for me and I'm like does it does it even matter if people you know if if I'm just writing because I want to write for it does it matter if anybody reads it so does it matter if I link to it on Twitter I don't know yeah. Well, I mean, Twitter Twitter can be a lovely thing, but in the end, like a lot of social, recent, especially social media platforms, it's designed, it's gamified. It's designed almost like a video game, or at least with aspects of a video game that are the sort of things that keep you connected to playing it, which is to say racking up favorites or retweets and going, yeah, that one's really good. I, I could beat my last score, you know? And that's not, not to downplay the idea of Twitter as a platform for, you know, marginalized voices to you know, speak out and challenged uh, received wisdom, but the, the underpinning of Twitter, the way it's designed, and Tumblr as well, it's sort of it's sort of there to addict you to using it more because that's how, you know, they, they keep you hooked on that thing. And, um, you know, eventually you kind of come to a place, I agree with Zanib, uh, Zainab, where it's, you know, you're, you're kind of wondering if you're just chasing meaningless things. Like, I'm also playing a video game now called uh, Super Mario Maker, where you make up, like, uh, Super Mario stages and you post them to the internet. And uh, I, I posted one last night, and, you know, a couple people clicked on it. So people I know from Twitter clicked on it, and then a random guy clicked on it, but he did not favor my board. And I felt... Uh, like this wave of like stupid anger, like how dare this guy not favorite me? I worked so much on that, but but then but then it's like it's like this is the natural venue for that though. I'd, it'd be sillier if I felt this way on a tweet that I think was funny and that no one favorited. But if it's a video game where I didn't score on it, well that that's just natural. That's just the rules of the game, right? But it's it's all just more it's all just more entertainment colliding with our. Uh, very interactions with reality and changing our perceptions of uh, of human interaction, uh, which will continue going into the future. You know, the other question I had is I wondered about the nature of children's book publishing or children's comics publishing and the way that a career, like career professionals like Drew and Eleanor might look at this as a, a kind of a... We, we, as a, I, I don't know how they perceive it, the project personally. Like I haven't talked to them, but I think we conceive of it for them as kind of a sideline, sideline, and not maybe their main kind of 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 creative outlet, but a good opportunity for them, and certainly like and can result in good comics. And I wondered if there is is there that kind of crossover in in the UK between you know alternative comics makers and a, a chance to do. 
kids books or or is it is it more rigidly um are those camps more rigid uh, do you have really? any yeah, I was just sorry. I was just going to say that it's a much, much smaller sort of like camp to start with. Um, so you don't really, there isn't really. I know it's sort of difficult to perhaps comprehend because maybe you're hearing about like comics festivals and you know uh, that we do have like a lot of festivals and a lot of cons, but there isn't really sort of like. I guess in even in like in the U.S. and Canada, you have like a mainstream scene, and then you have sort of like I don't know people like Eleanor and Drew who sort of like. Drew's well known online and Ellen obviously publishes with Fantagraphics and various other people. So you have sort of like, you know, people who publish with D and Q, but we don't really have any British comics publishers who sort of publish, you know, like like for, we have like self made hero, but again they publish sort of translations or it'll be very sort of like um I don't know, memoirs, you know, things like that that are very sort of like Jonathan Cape with this very middle class sort of um I, you know, the really wishy-washy thing. So I don't like. Th- there are so many good people, like you know, John Allison, Joe DC, um, I don't know, Christina Bozinski. There is so there's there are lots of people, but they all self-publish their own work. This is actually something I was thinking about the other day. So there's not a lot of crossover. Um, like there are, you do get the odd people. For example, like, I know Gary Northfield who has published like a kids uh, comic. And same with uh, Sarah McIntyre, sure. and they like Gary Northfield did work for like you know the Phoenix, which is a, a it's a weekly children's sort of like comics anthology, but there isn't there isn't much of a crossover I don't think, um, because there isn't much of that kind of scene where you know I don't think that children's children's editors people who edit children's book would really know about like comic artists who are self publishing so much so they wouldn't really think to look within that pool of resource really would Luke Pearson be the kind of yeah but Luke I think Luke was obviously sort of like found by Nobrow or however they found him whether it's a collaborative effort mm-hmm. and when they started um, you know it was just sort of like they do that 17 times 23 line so it was sort of like a unique situation they weren't looking for a kids comic book series um because it's sort of like Jack Teagle who did fight as the 16, 23 or 17, whatever it is. It really, it really found an audience, so they sort of like decided to publish more. I think he saw, like, again, like his books don't really, I wouldn't say they have a huge crossover into sort of like, you know, children's books areas. I don't think that you'd really find them in, well, we don't have, you know, really bookstores anymore, but the only ones that we have is Waterstones, and maybe you'd find them in the Odd Branch. Um, but I don't really think you have kids comics so much in like bookshops, uh, other than like stuff like Tintin maybe and you know Asterix, but definitely not like homegrown published things. Thank you, that's super interesting. Maybe the next book we can jump into is uh one of Zainab's picks is uh, Master Keaton by uh, Urasawa. And who's the... There's a writer on that, right? Or Yeah, I think there's two writers. It's Hokusai Katsushika and Takashi Nagasaki. Um, and Urasawa does the art, I think. But I think there was some controversy from what I could read online. Um, that yes. when 
um, Katsushika passed away, Urasawa sort of published an interview, I think it was in 2004 2005, saying that they'd had like personal differences and um, he had been writing the book. <laughs> and that's why he's got like, if you see like the cover, it'll say Master Keaton by Naoki Urasawa in large letters and then Story by in smaller letters. And it will say the writer's name. So I don't know the extent to which is that is true. I don't know if Joe knows anything about that. Or... Oh well, yeah. It's it it's kind of it it requires a little explanation of a uh, uh, manga in Japan. But um, basically, Master Keaton was serialized in. If you look at Naoki Urasawa's career, it kind it's kind of two tracks running in parallel. And one track is stuff he wrote for a magazine called Big Comic Spirits, which I think at the time came out uh, weekly. I think it still comes out weekly. And uh, the other one is a magazine called Big Comic Original, which you would think they would be sibling magazines, and they more or less are. They're from Shogakuk and the same publisher, but I believe they have different editors involved in them. And uh, Takashi Nagasaki was uh, actually uh, Urasawa's frequent, pretty much consistent editor uh, at Big Comic Original. He was actually one of the guys who published one of uh, Urasawa's really, really early works in the early 80s when... uh, uh, Nagasaki was working uh, on Golgo 13, uh, which is one of the big Shogakukan series that's been around since the 1960s. Uh, but anyway, um, when you work with an editor in Japan, it's sort of an unstated thing. And when I say unstated, I mean it's a mystery because some people don't really reveal what's actually happening. But sometimes the editor is kind of acting as the co-writer with the artist or sometimes just scripting the comic themselves, uh, you know, or directing the artist when the artists have ideas of what to do. And that is kind of how uh, Takashi Nagasaki would work with Naoki Urasawa. If, in fact, you uh, pull out your copies of Monster, the perfect edition that's coming out from Viz, you'll see a credit for Takashi Nagasaki in there, I believe, as a producer of the work. Uh, and I think if you pull out your copy of Pluto, he's just straight out called the co-writer of the work with Urasawa. And that's because he and Urasawa had basically been throwing around plot points back and forth for Urasawa and the crew of studio assistants, because manga artists also don't work alone on the art side, uh, pretty much from the beginning. He was the consistent editor on the big comic original side. So what had happened, though, was for Urasawa's first couple works for big comic original, which would be first something called... Pineapple Army, and the one that followed that was Master Keaton, and then the one that followed that was Monster. But anyway, for those first two, Urasawa was assigned scriptwriters to work with, not just an editor, but scriptwriters, both of whom were also formerly of Golgo 13. And uh, the one for Master Keaton was Hokusi Katsushika, and yeah, there was apparently some conflicts about where the story was supposed to go. It, it's still all a little shady, and the details aren't really unknown, which is to say they might be very well known in Japan and just no one's translated them. But what is pretty certain is that at some point, Katsushika kind of stopped being the writer, and Nagasaki sort of stepped into his role, which is why he is credited on these editions as the second writer. And then he and Urasawa basically operated as they do pretty much to this day. Uh, Nagasaki, interestingly, has been deemed so important to Urasawa's style that he eventually quit working with Shogakukan and became a freelance editor, a pretty rare position, and still basically functions with Urasawa today on his series Billy Bat, which is actually for Kodansha, a totally different publisher, which would generally involve you getting a new editor who works for the publisher. But if you're Naoki Urasawa and you've made a million, billion, bazillion dollars, then it doesn't fucking matter. You can do whatever you want. 
Yeah, thanks, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> yeah, no, you know so much about it. It's really good. Um, yeah, but I'm not sure, like, um, it basically, this series is about a half Japanese, half English um, man. I think he's supposed to be in his early 30s. He has, he has a daughter who's 14 years old. Um, so I'm not quite sure how that works, but yeah. Um, and he's sort of, he's an archaeologist and he's a professor also, but he also works as an insurance investigator. So he's sort of like this Indiana Jones type, um, but I guess a little bit more reserved. And also, oh yeah, I forgot to mention, he's been uh, in the SAS. Um, yes, yes. He's just like, you know, this really shining example of like, um, he can do everything essentially. <laughs> Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, so I think when I read the first volume, I didn't really like it. I've never really read it. I've read Monster and I've read uh, Pluto. And I think it's sort of less genre-driven than those books. Um, he does like these insurance investigations, but then also he has his sort of life is running um, in between these stories. So you'll get little stories where he goes off and doesn't investigate some sort of like art forgery or something. And then he'll come back and, you know, it'll just be like he's talking to his dad or talking to his daughter who's always telling him to get back together with his mother or, you know, find a girlfriend or something. And it just felt really un- uneven in tone. And I know, like, most of Urasawa's sort of, like, protagonists are sort of, like, really sort of, you know, those solidly good men who have who sort of, like, characters tested by some sort of allegation or something. Um, but I don't know, he just seemed so one note, like, it was just too much, you know, on top of like, oh, and he's this, and he's this, and he's this, and it was just like, I don't, I found it really difficult to sort of believe in him on any level, um, but I think I stuck with it because, like, I really like the character of his daughter, um, and also his father, who's sort of like this, he's sort of like, I think he's about 80, but he's like this rogue who sort of gets along with all the women, and, um, uh, so and then in the second and third books, it's sort of it's really weird because it changes. I don't think it changes identity, but it's. I think I've talked to, uh, to Joe about this before, but it becomes clear in what it wants to be. So you get those insurance investigations, and um, sort of one after the other, and he loses his job, so it becomes a little bit more focused. But it's sort of interesting to me because essentially these stories they're not sort they're sort of like really sort of social, sort of like, I don't know, like, that not social, sort of like human, in that he's always talking to, like, people, and he's, you know, they've made mistakes and everything, and it becomes less about the investigation, and he acts sort of like as a therapist, but, you know, <laughs> he, he can always sort of do everything, like, he can fix everything, um, and there's also, there's also at the end of them, like, there's these really pointed, like, social messages uh, at the end of some of them, like, you know, um, if the, if there's been something about like there's a story I think set in Turkey about refugees, and then you know there'll be a message about racism, or and which sort of like again it brings me back to the whole thing like who wrote this because at sometimes sort of like you can see I I don't know if it's just because I'm I'm now aware of this but I can see sort of like bits of Urasawa in there like the character moments feel very like him in yes. sort of like. In, in the, you know, in Monster and in Pluto, you get these, I think one of the things I've always liked about Urasawa is that he's able to bring in characters who aren't fundamental to the story, but like the main character will meet somebody and it'll be, it's he draws characters really well, like he writes them really well. So it'll be like a really sort of effective and impactful 
moment, even if it's just four pages, and you remember those characters and what happened. Um, so that feels true to me. But the the whole like social aspect of it, which I do like to an extent, but again, I don't like anything that feels like super on the nose, um, <laughs> which which makes me think that he, I don't know what's happened with the writing really. Um, but I like it. But I think it, it's really affirming, which I like because not a lot of works always are. But sometimes it delves into really sort of like schlocky affirmation, you know. And I just think you know, it's sort of like. I like the book, but it feels, yeah, I feel like it should go someplace now. I think it's on its third volume, and it's still, you know, I, I, I like reading about his life a little bit more, and I feel like that should move forward, mm-hmm. but I don't know what we'll get, but yeah. Yeah, Urasawa's not a guy who's afraid of uh, getting into schlocky territory. I'm thinking there's this one story in volume three about, like, St. Francis of Assisi, <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, what, yeah. the hell are, what the hell are you guys yeah. doing? Uh, but on, on, on other occasions, I mean, that I, I guess for me, part of the fun even with Master Keaton is kind of speculating on who wrote what, like when did, when did an argument break out over where this is going? Because if you look at like the very, very early, early Master Keaton stories in volume one, I mean, I think the very first story is almost pretty close. It, it's a Golgo 13 story, only it's about this, you know, funny guy who's an insurance investigator as opposed to a, an assassin who never smiles. Like, someone even gets bonked between the eyes with a projectile weapon, which is the most Golgo 13 thing in the universe. Uh, I really like how um, how an insurance investigator is, like, one, one of the bedrock, like, Pulp Fiction detective uh, jobs. Like, there was uh, an old radio show in America called uh, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, and Johnny Dollar was an... Uh, an insurance investigator who'd always get involved in mysteries and there'd be action and stuff. And uh, Master... Banachek was an an insurance investigator, one of the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. Detectives, the one played by George Pappard um, in in various turtlenecks and and extremely (laughs) troublesome to shoot double chin. uh, Oh, God. And he's supposed to be like a super athlete uh, insurance investigator, but he would he would take whatever like per, a percentage of the money that was going to be paid out if he could prove something was a fraud or or something. I, I forget what his setup was, but yeah, it's pretty common. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think Johnny Dollar just took his commission and fucked off because it was the 1950s. But uh, yeah, um, I mean, getting into. Uh, I mean, it, it, I, I, mine, I'm kind of of the impression that uh, the Urasawa slash Nagasaki feeling has gotten really, really strong in the book around the middle of volume two, where it really starts hitting on the emotional beats to, to the point where, and I think Tom has mentioned this to me before, where the stories seem almost like super compressed in that it's sort of mostly a human drama and then kind of the mystery is resolved in the last four or five panels or something at times. Uh, but I, I mean, what what I really, really respond to with Master Keaton is, especially in the first volume, there's this uh, one story with his daughter where he's just trying to relate to her, and there's a there's a scene where he goes to a, a parent teacher conference and and shows up the teacher who's being ignorant, which is just like a scene in Chris Nolan's Interstellar with Matthew McConaughey. Uh, but it's just this this incredibly poignant fantasy of like a salary man kind of being a worker, but also being like the perfect dad that I just found kind of 
emotionally overpowering because, of course, Urasawa is just pushing every button he can like he often does, but sometimes it works really well. And that reminds me that uh, a Sinan uh, manga like this, especially in something like Big Comic Original, which is a magazine that kind of skews a little older, I think like maybe... I mean, they, these comics are from the late 80s through the mid-90s, so uh, I don't know if this demographically was totally true back then, but now if you're reading Big Comic Original or Big Comic full stop, it's a sister magazine, you're pretty much assumed to be over 30, I think, like 30 and up, and uh, it's sort of, you know, it's it, it sort of, it's sort of ticks at this idea of, um, you know, get, getting your work done and still, like, functioning as a person in the world. It, Master Keaton himself, uh, Takashi Keaton, the character, he fits into this long, long line of uh, Japanese comic characters for older guys, uh, which I sort of call the perfectly competent man. And Golgo 13 is one uh, example of that, maybe the foundational example of it, because he is the perfect machine of snipe who can shoot anyone from any distance. But then you have the ultimate salaryman, um, uh, Kozaku Shima, uh, who's, you know, has starred in a soap opera about his life since the early 1980s, and he's the best worker who fixes every situation at the job, even though he's divorced from his wife and et cetera, et cetera. And you, you see this kind of character who's very, very, very good at something and then kind of has to navigate the rest of the world and the drama comes from his navigation of that world uh, quite often in sign and manga. Uh, I think it's sort of a thing that Japanese comics do that comics really elsewhere in the world don't do, certainly not pitched on the level of Japanese manga, where it's still, we keep hearing how the readership is dwindling, you know, in competition with everything else, like everywhere else in the world. But, you know, there's still an enormous audience enough for comics in Japan that it's accepted as a mass media, which is to say comics don't have the neurose, such neuroses that they don't feel the need sometimes to function on a level different than that of a television show where you, you know, tune in every day or you turn into the radio and hear Johnny Dollar or watch Banishek do his thing and you'd watch, you'd read Master Keaton do his thing, you know, episodically in and out and it'd be okay for a comic to function like that because comics are on the level of something like television or movies in Japan. They're in parody in that way. I suspect Urasawa and Nagasaki being Urasawa and Nagasaki will eventually you know, uh, ramp up, uh, you know, at least the emotional continuity in Master Keaton. It's probably going to be more episodic than Monster. But then then again, Monster was kind of a big break in Urasawa's career, where up until then, mostly his big hits had been in the other magazine, Big Comic Spirits, where he was doing like sports manga, like long extended serial sports manga, which would be, you know, cliffhanging drama with sports action, romantic comedy, etc. And I think he's mentioned he wasn't really into the subject matter of that. He just liked it as a form of uh, narrative mechanics. And with Monster, he took the mechanics from those comics and applied them to the sort of thriller uh, subject matter he was doing in Pineapple Army and Master Keaton. And he just did Monster, which was a comic like those, but in the manner of the big, big, big hit sports manga on which he had made his bread and butter. And that transformed his career. That's been the direction he's followed ever since then. So in that way, I think Master Keaton is also uh, interesting as a predecessor. It's going to be a very long predecessor, though, because there's going to be 12 volumes, plus uh, a 13th, which uh, Urasawa and Nagasaki just returned to a couple years ago to do a reunion. So that's the 13th volume. Tom, what do you think? Uh, you know, I don't have much to say that hasn't already been said. You know, there's, there's one thing about the quality... 
it seemed to me I like especially early on I was just, I was bored to tears by the comics and they just <laughs> like ordinary television shows. So I started thinking about the kind of television shows that they're like that this was like that I was reading. And one thing that's different about this when you usually have a character that's super competent and that most people like and kind of marches his way through a series of successful operations. It's more it's a lot on television that's usually in a you know a subcategory a subgenre of television that I like to call asshole TV which is <laughs> where these guys that you know it's basically like a male star it's usually someone who has a second hit or who's going from movies to TV and they basically create a character that is seen as like is 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 hyper competent does everything right everyone sees them but they're kind of a they're just an asshole they're unbearable Quincy is who Michael Coverman does a great job of making fun of in the comics, is kind of a classic example. Like, if that was your friend, if that was someone you know, you would just think he was a creep and a jerk. Uh, John Larroquette on the John Larroquette show is another classic example of a, a loser who always succeeds at everything and has super uh, hot partners kind of throwing themselves at his feet. Um, so, but in this, it kind of, it, he was likable, and I couldn't figure that out, but I think it's just the kind of quality of the drawing. And one thing that we don't do very well as kind of a, a maybe a critical body even, but as readers, I think we don't sometimes look at the nature of drawing as a, as an equivalent to acting on in media that involve actors, and that how much the depiction of someone or how much the appeal of someone as portrayed as executed on the page has a dramatic effect on the overall story. Sometimes we think of, of comics as kind of like empty story vehicles, but it really does make a difference because if this had been drawn by someone with a less, you know, kind of a, like a less appealing character design and a less, um, a, a lot a more, a, a less interesting way to portray him physically, I, you know, it would have been unbearable. It, it would have just been boring. It would have been unbearable. So I, you know, I just think that that's that's something that that we don't often um, think about in comics. Um, who, who draws in a way where the characters are good actors? Jaime Hernandez is a, an example of an American cartoonist whose characters are very good actors and very good vehicles for a wide range of of things. It's not required, but it gives you a range of effect. And I think that's what kept me going until like almost exactly like. Uh, Joe describes it's, it. It gets more interesting about halfway through volume two as as different ideas get get kind of short shrift and other ideas kind of push themselves to the forefront or other kind of scenario within scenario or scenarios or whatever. So yeah, I pretty much agree with 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 both of the takes and um, just I, I was just struck a little bit by the quality of drawing at least got me through to. Stuff that was a little more interesting because that first book was rough. <laughs> <laughs> um, I it's funny because I actually really liked the first one. I, I should say I also liked the first one, but it's. Well, it's I not think... like I didn't like it, but I, it was just like I I didn't you know when you're assigned to read it and you're reading a bunch at once, it's kind of like yeah. What is what is why are we doing this one as opposed to like seven thousand other ones? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's. It, I'd also add it's it's almost appreciably sort of a slightly different comic than it is later, which maybe you can say for a lot of long running comics when they you could say that for Love and Rockets, the Jaime stuff too. Yeah. But anyway, what were you saying, Robin? Um, I just the um, I like the kind of more personalness of the first 
volume where you're yeah. finding more about his life where uh with the second and third it's like okay we now how are we going to do this as an episodic thing to keep it going forever um, <laughs> and it, it felt like that like when watching like a tv show like that has the episodic villain and so it's just going to be each section is just a mystery on that um it's enjoyable i like it i'm always a little weary with how far urasawa's gonna go um how many volumes like does it keep going and so i'm interested to see where it goes um if there's no other comments on that we'll jump on to the next book um, oh, order of beer don't midnight mm. huh keep going okay uh one of Tom's picks, which I feel kind of uh, is a good follow-up to Master Keaton, is uh, Resident Alien, uh, the Sam Hain uh, mystery uh, by Steve Parkos and, oh God, what was the other person? Peter Hogan. Peter Hogan. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, Tom, what was the choice behind that okay, one? Well, this is, it, kind of, it does actually connect what we're talking about, because I, I, I'm struck by it when I'm reading this one. It's a perfectly pleasant comic book. You know, and it's 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 fine. It's I enjoyed it. I would happily give it. Like my mom, I think would be a good audience for this comic book. Weirdly enough, and I think it's accessible. But it's also it is so like a television show. It's like not even, not even like you could just it could just be on TV exactly like that. Now it would be like some weird A and E, you know, Longmire replacement or something that you know, or a straight to Netflix show. And it just seemed to me that it, I, I don't remember being struck by a comic that absorbed those values so completely. It really does, even in the execution of it, just feels like a TV, like the, the, the kind of modern TV show ethos. And I, I'm not sure that there's anything really comic booky about it at all. And is, is that a thing? Are comic books a thing? Is is it doesn't need to be uniquely comic books. It certainly doesn't need to be to be enjoyable. That's but I but I just don't know why you would. I don't know. I just it just it just struck me as so of that kind of kind of story that I just wondered if other people would have that same reaction. I mean, it just literally just seemed like they could cast it right off the page and start filming tomorrow and. And it might not exist in any other for any other reason than that. I mean, it kind of, it sort of came out at a time where Dark Horse seemed to be pushing for high concepts to move into production, and that's when they did that that uh, Peter Bag that virtual reality one that was kind of it was kind of like an Adam Sandler vehicle wannabe. <laughs> it seemed like anyway, um, and I'm not, and it just seemed like they were doing like several comics like that that were kind of what they used to call high concept to kind of snag attention or to drive a, a deal. Um, and this one, you know, it's, it's nicely executed. It's, it's amenable, good company, but I just don't know what, like, is there, is there an audience for that here? The same way there might be an audience for that as, as Jog was speaking about in Japan, where it's not, you don't need, you, it's, uh, is comics enough of a mass medium here <laughs> that we need a television show on paper for, 4,000 people. Well, the, fir the, the first thing I would say is, and I neglected to mention this before, but uh, it, it should be mentioned that Master Keaton did actually become a television show as well, of which right. there was uh, 39 episodes. <laughs> but uh, 
Uh, I don't know if that's uh, in the cards for Resident Alien. I think my, I mean, when I say it's like a television show, it's it's that, but it's also kind of something else because it feeds off of a lot of traditions from comics too. And I think my take on Resident Alien is a little different uh, in that I saw it as very much, and maybe I can't detach myself from this context, but I saw it, it, it came, uh, it was initially serialized, the early parts in uh, Dark Horse Presents when it was like, you know, a hundred pages long, and uh, it was populated mainly by some pretty old school people, like Neil Adams had a serial, uh, Howard Chaikin had a serial, Richard Corbin was in like every other issue, um, and uh, I see it as very much of a type with what what used to be called ground level comics in like the early early eighties. Like it, it strikes me as the kind of comic Eclipse would have put out like way back in the day, maybe maybe first comics, but it, this is a little low key even for first comics, I think. Um, but, uh, no, it, it, it's the kind of, you know, it's, it's sort of, sort of a genre comic. I mean, this is like the third storyline, I guess I think it is. Uh, so this isn't the introduction. And at this point, I think almost all of the, uh, you know, supernatural or science fiction elements of Resident Alien, which is about an alien from space who's, uh, posing as a doctor in a small town and, and solves mysteries, a la the Father Dowling mysteries or something, um, but he's, um, like pretty much all the science fiction elements have been relegated to like, like the B plot here that kind of lurks around the edges. Um, so, but you know, it's kind of, it, you know, Dark Horse used to publish Concrete, you know, the Paul Chadwick series. And that was also a human interest comic about a guy who happens to be Ben Grimm, the thing. He's a big, uh, rocky dude and he sort of navigates life as a rocky dude and all of the the genre science fiction elements sort of verbal in the background a little only really jumping up to uh have you know ideally some sort of uh additional metaphoric value and i don't even know what the metaphoric value would be for resident alien but i think it's sort of playing off of that kind of also playing off of that sort of old school comics tradition maybe maybe an ideal time in north american comics where they felt there was still a more of a potential for a mass medium besides uh, beyond offering uh, scenario advice to uh, blockbuster Hollywood movies. Um, I mean, I thought it was a basically enjoyable comic. I mean, w when you're dealing with Parkhouse and Hogan, uh, you're also dealing with uh, 2000 AD or greater 2000 AD, I guess. Like Peter Hogan started out editing, I think, Crisis and uh, Revolver, which were uh, 2080 spinoff magazines in the 90s. And Steve Parkhouse dates back to like Warrior, and uh, he did the Bo Jeffries comics with Alan Moore. Definitely Alan Moore's best uh, humor work, by the way. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's it's way more straightforward than Peter Hogan usually gets, because I, I see him as kind of an elliptical storyteller in not always a good way, and that he's doing pretty basic straight ahead genre stuff that some sometimes doesn't really make sense because you don't feel you feel like every third panel has somehow accidentally been deleted via photoshop uh and you know like carlos sampaio can make that work but peter hogan isn't that kind of writer um th th this was much more straightforward than he usually gets which i mean maybe that's even the presence of park house who has a very very appealing like kind of old stock british caricature driven comedy approach that you know makes everything light and happy but uh i mean you, you know man talk about narrative differences like the the first chapter like the first section of this like you suddenly got the the guy detailing the backstory and like captions and i'm like oh man this is this is the western comics tradition altogether man uh it's it's you know it's cute it's cute <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. Uh, it so, sounds like both of you hated it. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't hate it, but it's it's not the kind of thing I'd go out of my way to look at, you know? Well, that's kind of what I wonder. Yeah, is there something about the aging of the audience, too? Is this is this something that's also aimed at, like, over 45-year-olds? I, I think I think it is, because... No, 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 no. I don't think it is. I've been reading this from the beginning, guys, okay? I've been reading this since it started, and I am 28, okay? Um, I really like it. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know, because if it's, like, I obviously have genre leaning towards, sort of like, crime and mystery things, um, and also sci-fi... Um, and I don't think it's high content at all, like Joe, like Joe said. I think it's more sort of like really old school. I think it seems like a really basic situation and, you know, one that we've seen in like countless times before, you know, stranded alien, you know, trying to... Um, but, yeah, I like I like that it's, it just feels really solid and sort of like familiar. Um, I guess I, I think less about sort of like the construct of it, you know, in terms of like where it fits in and whether it's doing anything new in that I, I just feel like it, sets out to do something and it does it really solidly and really well um you know i like the whole idea of him sort of i don't know it's just a whole assimilation theme um and i i think i view it more as an ongoing story even though you do get these little episodic mysteries that he solves um i i feel like i'm more invested in what like happens to him even though it is sort of like relegated to you know, you'll see every now and then there'll be a flashback or, you know, he'll remember somebody or you'll see the FBI trying to track him down. Um, but, yeah, I just think it's a really, really solid comic. Did um, you, um, I don't did, think there's anything bad about it. <laughs> did, did you, um, like, a, have you read any, like, uh, I, I don't know what your familiarity is with, like, like early, earlier British comics. Like, there, have you read anything by, like, Peter Hogan before? Or? No, no, but I can understand, like, I... I, I know this sounds a little bit dumb, but like this sort of like that. No, 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 not at all. Uh, you know, sometimes I haven't even said it yet, Joe. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes things can feel British, if that makes sense. Yes. You know, an approach or like the way it's written, and I I think it's sort of like just in the whole like the way it's sort of like really sort of almost earthy in a sense, you know, um, and. Yeah, it does. It doesn't. I don't think it feels overly British to me, but it feels really solid, and it just it sort of reminds me a lot of things like the man who fell to earth. But obviously, it's not. It doesn't go in that direction. But then he's also trying to assimilate. But you know, you know, it's not going to come out well. And I don't know. I really liked it. I like it. I mean, I've been reading it from the beginning, and I hope I hope they continue it. All right. Yeah. Uh so there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just touching on something Tom said earlier about kind of comics that felt so TV show ready. I think I Zombie, when I first read it, I got that same feeling of like the Mike Alred comic. Yeah, the Mike Alred Chris Robertson thing. When I first read it years ago, I was like, this this just feels like they want to do a TV show set in Eugene. Um, Did they get picked up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Years later, um, but. I got that exact same feeling. Um, the next book, if folks are ready for the next one, um, which I feel kind of also goes along with the previous two books um, about the main character being a mysterious stranger, uh, Corto Maltese, um, the second book yeah. from the Euro line, 
at IDW, uh, Corte Maltese, Beyond the Windy Isles, um, by the great Hugo Pratt uh, book, uh, if we were talking a year ago, and said, hey, want to talk about Corte Maltese book? Like, yeah, that would be great. Um, but now they've been doing really terrific uh, reprints of it, of uh, Hugo stuff, and uh, I'm really, really happy to see these books. I didn't like the second one as much as I liked the first one. It felt a lot more yeah. episodic and kind of in between storylines. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious to see what you guys think. Same. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, oh, well, Zanim can start. No, that wasn't me. Go ahead, go ahead Jog. <laughs> no, You're ready. I'm sorry. No, uh, yeah, I suggested this book um, basically because I knew Zanim likes uh, Cordo Maltese and. Tom had actually said on his site that he he had expressed some concerns that now that the series is going and it's on like the second volume of the IDW stuff that everyone is basically going to stop talking about it now that the anticipation period is over. And I admittedly haven't really seen a lot about this uh, second Beyond the Windy Isles book. So uh, I don't know, maybe 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 we can help change the world today. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Beyond the Windy Isles, I mean, it is exactly what Robin says it is. It's uh, the next portion um of a series uh what had happened was um hugo pratt i mean he'd been a uh, professional in comics for i think almost 20 years uh in italian uh in italy argentina and for a little while in england uh before cardo maltese started and what had happened was in italy they had started up a magazine called sergeant kirk which was based off of a comic uh pratt drew and um hector german osterhead the great uh um, Argentinian comics writer had put together a little while ago and in accompanying the uh, stuff that was in Sergeant Kirk, Pratt decided to write and draw basically a serialized graphic novel in the style of uh, you know, Jack London and Herman Melville and other uh, great adventure writers and that eventually became something called The Ballad of the Salt Sea. That was in the late 60s and reading it now, uh, and of course if you want to read it now, you're probably going to go for the the much maligned Rizzoli edition from five or six years ago, which was admittedly based on, I think, a French edition that had been okayed by the Pratt estate, but it it cuts up the page layouts and, uh, you know, plumps up the uh, page count by that way, and it's colorized in kind of a weird, blurry-ish fashion. But if you look at, nonetheless, if you look at The Ballad of the Salt Sea, it's structured as a novel in the way that I think a lot of graphic novels aren't, uh, in that there's a lot of digressions and kind of a, a long, extended uh, end game that sort of, uh, you know, uh, flatters the themes a little more than you would if you were going for like a three-act uh, movie structure uh, that I think a lot of graphic novels right now sort of pursue and uh one of the ensemble characters in there was a uh, a roguish sea captain by the name of uh Cordo Maltese and what had happened was I don't think there was an enormous public uh support for the Ballad of the Salt Sea when it was being serialized in Italy but uh at uh, I think a Luca Comics Festival Pratt hooked up with an editor from a very popular uh French uh children's magazine called uh Pif Gigit. And um, the editor said, hey, you know, that, uh, that Cordo Maltese guy is a hot character find. Want to uh, put him in a series of little stories for Pete Gajet? And Pratt was like, hell yeah. So what happened was he started doing in the early 1970s, pretty much through, I think, um, 73, uh, he started doing little episodes of Cordo Maltese in this uh, French magazine for the French market, which was then redistributed around. And... Uh, 
Beyond the Windy Isles is the second collection of those short stories. Uh, Beyond the Sign of Capricorn, which was the first IDW volume, was the first collection of those stories. So you're definitely correct in saying this feels like, ah, more Cordo Maltese. But I actually really enjoy this volume because I think there's there's a little more thematic focus in this particular suite of stories than before. Um, it's still, there's still continuity. Like, if you look at the first uh, story in this, uh, uh, Cordo Maltese has amnesia, and in order to process that amnesia, you kind of have to read the last story of the prior volume, but I, I guess it still works as an introduction, but a lot of the stories, and this is true from the prior book too, but especially with these stories, a lot of it is focused around the theme of colonialism and about indigenous peoples trying to keep or maintain control of their own government through either a noble or, you know, less than a legal means and sort of the, you know, the, the, the machinations of other outside powers and trying to deal with these, uh, these sort of uh, island peoples, which have long been under the yoke of colonialism and really almost everything in this book, save for, a, uh, a story about a hallucinating uh, dying man who ran away from battle that literally could be a Harvey Kurtzman uh, two-fisted Dales story. Um, the book is very, very intently focused on that, and through it all walks uh, Cordo Maltese, who's this really wonderfully uh, cosmopolitan character. I mean, Hugo Pratt, you know, he, he's a guy who you would say had lived a lot of life. He had lived in many different countries, was fluent in numerous languages. Um, he was very, very, very studious in uh, terms of grasping uh, foreign cultures and trying to navigate through those cultures with his own very uh, blended uh, uh, background himself. And so there's there's this element of, there's this egalitarian element to so much of Cordo Maltese and the way he interacts with people that's, I think, unlike really any other comic I've read. You've probably read other comics about, you know, handsome rogues being cool and having adventures, but the the, the particular texture, the the density, really, uh, the, um, I mean, the, the national or international density of Cordo Maltese is something that I don't think really exists in a lot of other comics and is really fantastic to even witness. Um, it certainly it added a sense of sophistication to what was stories in a, um, you know, a magazine for children in France uh, that sort of wrote it through in a time where a lot of artists from children's magazines like Pilot uh, started growing hungry and broke off into their own magazines like uh, Nicot de Savant or uh, Mittal Herlant. Uh, those were all guys who started in children's magazines too and started you know, uh, triggering the maturation of French comics at that time. And, you know, Hugo Pratt wasn't French, it, but it was published in a French magazine, and it sort of stood as almost a beacon for, you know, what these comics could become, even though nothing quite became like Cordo Maltese. Say that. Yeah, I like Corto, and I think he's super sexy. Um, um, this book, I... Did not like as much as the first one. I think probably the first one was, um, it felt more cohesive. And this one just feels like short stories. Uh, also, I'm not sure about the ordering, but like the amnesia storyline. And then there's a, there's a lady who's a character from there and she has a story. Those two stories sort of like open this book and it feels, I think if you haven't perhaps read the previous one, it can feel like really disjointed because you don't know where you've seen her from or what she's referring to. Um, 
But the other, so I didn't, for that reason, I didn't sort of like like it as much, but I really like the stories. Um, is it Sweet Lagoon? The one with the hallucinating soldier? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and the one, and there's another one at the end, I think, A Tale of Two Grandfathers, which I also like. Um, yeah. I, I do also really like the themes, like Joe said, I think it, it's, it's really rich, you know, like in a way that I feel like even today, like few comics are really. Um, uh, with what it does, and it feels like those seems to feel very contemporary in the terms of like you know allowing cultures coexistence and agency, um, and um, yeah, so I like it. I, I like the second volume not as much as I like the first volume, but just because it feels sort of like a placeholder in terms of um, you know Carter, and I really like the relationship between him and Steiner, like you know his like right hand man. Um, it feels like really affectionate and like the, the, they have like this sort of like easy banter going on. And yeah. The, like no, sorry. go on. I, yeah, I was just going to say that all, all this volume is missing is uh, Rasputin, who's uh, Cordo's, uh, the Wario to Cordo's Mario. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, he was in the first one, but he was, he's not in this one. No, um, no. And I, I like him. And I, you know, Hugo Pratt's sort of like artwork, it's sort of. It, so it's, I think it's really so romantic. It feeds into like Tom was talking about. We don't consider the way things are drawn as much, and his style, I think, um, is sort of like fundamental in the way that obviously Cotto is like perceived. Like he's supposed to be, I guess, a romantic cosmopolitan hero, but you know the way he's drawn really helps. But I think one of the things I find weird is that Pratt's the way Pratt draws people a lot of the times. I think that like they come across very similar when you know whenever you get closer yeah. to the faces, and that really throws me off because I don't know it looks so weird. Sometimes you can tell he does it on purposely. I don't know whether you know it's like oh this is a bad guy. I'm gonna draw him like looking really evil. But sometimes every any, any character can end up looking like that, and I don't know why that is really because obviously he's sort of like such a great artist and. I'm not sure why that happens. Uh, there, there's a wonder. There's a wonderful quote by the uh, the late Kim Thompson on the back cover of the first IDW one, under the sign of Capricorn, where he describes uh, Pratt's artistic chops as hard won or something, which is a great bit of uh, of um, allusion to um, you know, I, it, like this is a guy who really had to develop a style. Like even even going back to the Ballad of the Salt Sea, he he pretty demonstrably has difficulty like keeping how Cordo Maltese looks consistent from panel to panel. Uh, yeah. that, 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 that's kind of what I think is sort of wonderful about Pratt because he's not, I mean, he's a really rich and interesting artist. He, he does these like, you know, these solid pools of black just so amazingly well. And he can do like almost caricaturo uh, panels of, uh, you know, just shadow play that are amazing. But you know, he, he, he's never so perfect that there isn't, like, little, like, weird moments where he's drawing, where he, he seems to be, like, kind of fighting against his uh, his own sense of draughtsmanship, which, I yeah, don't know, I, I, I find that really endearing, actually, that it's, this, that it's this guy who's kind of fighting with the page a little. Yeah, and the fact that it's not perfect, I think, makes it even better, the fact that, you know, like, his imperfection sort of, like, like you said, it makes it more endearing. But I do like that he goes super loose at times and, you know, there's all this ink in it. You can just see, like, the brushes. And sometimes it's really fine and you'll get all these swooping lines. And I like I like how, like, 
it's sort of like in, an inherently sort of romantic book, and that's sort of like I, I like how much that is reflected in the art. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. There's an element of that that made me laugh actually, in that my memory of my memory of Pratt's art reading it in untranslated form is a lot different than my the reality of reading it now. And one of the one of the ways that is is that I don't remember as many kind of drop backgrounds and kind of sparse drawing and really increment almost incremental. Um, drawings of action scenes, and I, you know, it made me think of. It for, so I'll be reading like this one in particular. I was like reading, and it seemed like that there were almost time saver elements to the art in that. And then like there's a page where there's like a hat, which is like the hardest to draw hat I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I just start laughing because I like, why would you choose? Like, it can't be it can't be that bad of a deadline if you're choosing to draw this hat eight times. This hat is ridiculous. So I, there's a kind of freewheeling aspect to it that I like. There kind of, uh, there's a uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, like a, almost like a classic free use of the word later on, but a slacker quality to it. Yeah. Kind of, uh, kind of um, yeah, kind of an expansive way of uh, presenting a story that is, that is super appealing. Um, I, you know, the other thing that I wonder about when, when, and I was always, I was interested in reading Zainab's first review of it is that I don't know. I mean, very often we'll do we have a reprint project where you just think like it's a reprint project that's twenty years too late, and I kind of wonder who, what the audience is for this one in a kind of fundamental way, in the same way that I kind of wonder. You know, like who the Hal, like they're doing those new Hal Foster books, and I wonder who the audience is for that because I know at one point there's a significant audience for that in the U.S. to the point at which it was like 20% of what Fano was bringing in was was those white Prince volume Prince Valiant volumes. Uh, but now I and I just kind of wonder in general like where Pratt fits or if he fits at all. Um, oh, I, I, I think there's uh, been a pretty strong uptick in interest in uh, European comics, particularly from 70s European comics. Um, you know, I don't think it's an enormous body of people like the, you know, people who want to read manga or the people who want to read, continue to want to read superhero comics. But I think I think Pratt just gets psychologically and rhetorically slotted in with uh, guys like Moebius and you know, if you like him, then, you know, you've probably heard of Hugo Pratt, and you'll probably be interested in reading Hugo Pratt. I mean, Pratt's a lot older, but, you know, Cordo Maltese, at least, is sort of contemporaneous with stuff like the Airtight Garage. Uh, so I think that growing interest in uh, European comics, especially from that time period, is sort of is sort of what they're, you know, banking on. And it, especially because Cordo Maltese is something you've probably heard of if you've done, you know, enough reading on world comics, but it's not something that's been readily available for a very long time. So I, I actually think the time right now is pretty right for putting this book out. Okay. I think the the Munoz and Pio Alex Inner book may be a yeah, bigger hit for contemporary audiences. Yeah, I, I would say that if if that if, if Jog's line of reasoning is correct, then that would be that would make sense for sure. I think it feels more accessible, like to me, than like people sort of like Mobius and things. Um, because like I mean, I don't think I've ever read anything by Mobius because 
I don't know. I mean, I think I tried reading the Inkle and it just, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, try, I, I also tried reading Blueberry and there's just, there's such a vitrolic racist forward to it that I just couldn't even, yeah, no, I didn't find it hard to racist. I think the forward it had, I can't remember who it was written by, was horrible racist. <laughs> and um, everybody's backwards. Etc. Etc. Um, and I just uh, I just read that and I thought oh, I can't. Uh, blueberry. Um, and I'm not saying anything. I'm not like I think Mobius is, uh, is obviously like super influential, and you can see how good it is. But I'm not sure how accessible his writing and also you know all the translation issues, how accessible his work is. Um, yeah, oh, I I, uh, I would agree that that I would actually agree in terms of how well regarded he is and how actually accessible he is to read in terms of getting through his work. Moebius has maybe one of the widest gulfs around. Like, try, I mean, man, the, the airtight garage is, it's, I mean, in many ways, it's kind of a hardcore art comic even, but one that's done almost entirely as a means of, of drawing, which, I mean, gosh, that sounds like a block, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I had the same problem. Is that written by Jaborowski? Um, yes. And drawn by Mobius? Yeah, and I, I think we got three quarters through it about these sure because they got... And I just, it was, I found it turgid, you know? I mean, the drawing <laughs> yeah. was really nice, but, like, the rest of it, it just, it held no interest whatsoever. Um, yeah. So I do think more accessible in that way. Um, I think his art is really super, you know, it's loose and it's attractive. Um, I think a lot of what he's, you know, like you were talking about colonialism, and that might be more specific, but I think thematically it is quite contemporary, like issues that we talk about today in terms of like, you know, equality and things are sort of his work, and that sort of resonate, a lot of them resonated with me when I was reading. Um, and it, like very ahead of his time in that way, I think. Okay, I, I just from flipping through this book, you uh, you mentioned that Cordo Maltese himself is an attractive man, and uh, I've got to say, Pratt is is pretty much the guy you want to look at if you want to study a way to draw like uh, an attract like a, a sexy woman um, who you know you'd communicate her sexiness like disgusting or horrible about it. I think Pratt is amazingly good at doing that. He's quite a classy artist, isn't he? That, yeah, yeah, he, he is. draws people. He's sort of like, it, there's nothing sort of like in your face about it. He's sort of, it it's quite a, um, a natural thing that he can convey. It's impressive. Yeah. i say let's jump on to the next book. Um... It, it kind of feels like it connects in a way. I don't know, we're talking about all these, like, uh, mysterious stranger uh, protagonists and um, Ed Luce's uh, Wolfable Oaf um, featuring another, uh, although probably extremely different from the rest of the, uh, the, the picks we've been talking about, uh, recently collected from uh, Fanographics, uh, a series of self-published comics that Ed's been uh, doing many, many a comic show um, for this fantastic series. Uh, it's a really nice to see collected in a big hardcover volume. Um, it's a fantastic, uh, cartoonist and, uh, 
I'm interested to hear what you guys think. Uh, Tom, what was the pick behind Wovable Oaf? I don't remember, um, to be honest, because it's been long. Uh, been a long time. I like the work. Um, I have an interview where I'm supposed to do an interview. I forget which one with him about it. I guess, you know, how it originally caught my interest was that um, it seemed like that it's the, as far as I can tell, it's the second major book acquired by uh, Jack Cohen there. Yeah. Which I don't, which I, I think is, it's interesting that she's now acquiring books for them or kind of pushing books in their direction. I don't know if there's a, a formal acquisition person that's not her. But in that, and then that after the, the um, Hanselman's book, of course, um, that she acquired more than a book there. Um, but yeah, so I was kind of interested in, in kind of, uh, that's kind of where my interest began is that uh, Fanographics seemed to be responding finally to kind of gathering up a, another, gener another uh, generation of talent Whereas I, you know, conventional wisdom, at least in all comics America, is that Drawn and Quarterly had had scored kind of a lot of the major kind of both commercial and uh, talent ready people from the under thirty five or emergent new people. I don't know. Ed, Ed might be a little older. His beard is certainly older uh, looking. But so I, I was kind of interested in that as kind of a, a, a kind of a pushback from Fantagraphics, kind of a, a way that they might distinguish themselves as a publisher. Um, you know, kind of away from their classic generation of people and how that might be perceived. Um, the work itself often gets claimed um, kind of, um, um, it's, it's very funny and it's visually accomplished. It gets uh, claimed for itself kind of as a, a unique world building or the representation of a unique world that I'm not sure that I all the way kind of, that all the way kind of penetrates to me when I'm reading. I Sometimes find I would get a little lost in that in the world that he's created, um, mm -hmm. and I don't know if that's. I was kind of interested to see if anyone else had that same experience reading it. Um, and I, you know, it's just generally very. It's a very surprising work to me because it, I, it does, it does seem to have emotional resonance beyond kind of this super appealing kind of art style and its surface humor elements and and in that way it kind of seems like a classic alt comic of which there aren't a lot of types you know it's a very idiosyncratic way of presenting an entire world so i i i kind of i just kind of was a little enough confused that i wondered if people agreed with me it's not like i wanted to come on here and and rip off 20 minutes on it as much as i wanted to hear what you guys had to say um, I, uh, and I hinted at this earlier, Tom, but, well, first of all, I agree that it's kind of in the tradition of, uh, earlier alternative comics. I know, uh, Ed is kind of into, uh, Jaime Hernandez and Love and Rockets. I think he mentioned that to Robin in his interview, mm -hmm. I think. Um, it actually struck me a bit more like Peter Bagg's Hate, uh, in that it has a lot of very antic and uh, rather zany characters sort of interacting with each other. It, it's obviously much kinder and gentler than hate, but it has the same sort of cartoon energy to it with people kind of, uh, kind of, you know, bouncing around from situation to situation, like, like, like sort of situations that kind of verge on the end of, on the edge of being a sitcom, but are just like done in a weird manner. Uh, and at, you know, at the same time, there's kind of 
you know, some relationship tight character building from issue to issue going through. It's also, I think, very uh, cognizably uh, a work collecting pieces of a serialization. And then the back half of the the whole back half of this 300 something page book, I think, is its length, is uh, just short stories that were done in mini comics or like they're, they're, like he there was an elf world anthology. So there's a story where suddenly everyone's like, you know, in a fantasy thing. Uh, there's this amazingly grotesque science fiction action thing in it that just impressed me so much in how how viscerally weird the drawing is. I think I think he's a very interesting artist when he goes weird. There's like a there's a cat the uh, lead character owns who's kind of disturbed, and he has a a strange way of seeing the world that allows for a lot of uh, grotesque uh, visions that I thought were. Very interesting. Uh, he actually mentions Dave Sims somewhere in the back of the book, and he's got a little bit of that, even that slightly earlier kind of old school alternative style, you know, uh, a direct sort of accessible mainstreamy approach, but done with sort of a sort of this like heavy aplomb, I guess. Um, it also it took me and maybe Tom could answer this question, but it took me a while after reading it until I realized there wasn't actually any explicit sex in it. And I think that's because there's so much emphasis on bodily fluids or cats licking people's hair or guys, you know, slamming their hands and playing the drums off another guy's ass cheeks, where it's it feels like very impactful and, and fluid in the way that almost reminded me of some of Fanagraphics' Eros comics, especially the ones that weren't even so concerned with being sexy as just presenting like sort of explicit material in a really effective like bodily effective manner it it's not actually explicit but i didn't notice it wasn't explicit until later like i thought i'd seen everyone's dicks and did, did you feel the same way tom i did you know there's a point in which in one of the short stories you do see a dick and then that was kind of shocking because i realized i maybe hadn't seen one yet yeah um but yeah no i agree with you and i i and it's i i hadn't thought about that even until you just said that but it is true there is a lot of that where I don't even know. It's not even implied through narrative as much as it's just implied through kind of the zany, like the energy and kind of what's being depicted. And the fact that, you know, I don't know, there's weird, there's, there's a lot of weird elements. Like there's a lot of weird, um, not weird, but there's a lot of uh, depicting of, if, as I recall, like depicting of like the of people like faced forward, you know, almost like they're playing towards a specific kind of, camera that's placed yeah. in front of them which isn't which is kind of classic all in a way but it's not and there was not a lot of camera movement it didn't seem like it seemed like i don't so it's weird i mean it's, it's staging is really weird odd for me to look at i don't know did you have problems I mean, do you have any problems with the world like the kind of following what was going on in that world no not really I, I didn't really have any problems i i thought it was your kind of uh kind of not magical realist but sort of wacky world where there's also like little fantasy elements that sort of intrude in like what what one once again I'd refer back to Cerebus which especially later in its run around the 90s had basically the same texture where you know it'd be like a lot of interpersonal relationships but then you know oh wait there the guy can fashion dolls from his bodily hair that has murderous uh, intent you know that right. that, that that attains sentience uh so I, I, I just kind of bought everything immediately. Uh, I thought it was, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily coherent, but it didn't strike me as anything that took me out of the story, and particularly since the 
the very manic style of drawing, especially how the way he draws different characters seems to almost position them as walking in from different comics. Uh, I thought that sort of uh, catch-as-catch-can approach just prepared me for whatever, whatever wackiness he threw in. Also, I gotta say, there's a scene at an art gallery opening where everyone at the art gallery are characters from other alternative comics, which right. is also the most 90s service thing that could possibly occur. <laughs> so, just to throw that in. Why am I talking about Dave Sims so much? It's because this is a Canadian show, right? Yay. Um, it also reminded me a lot of, uh, with the 90s stuff, um, a lot of Bob Fingerman's um, Minimum Wage stuff and Terry Laban's Cud. Oh my, Terry Laban. Yeah, I'm digging deep 90s there. Um, what, but... what, what did what did Zainab make of this book? I'm very interested. Yeah, now, now we've set it up, I'm, I'm horribly interested in what <laughs> Zainab had to say. <laughs> Um, I liked parts of it. I didn't, um, I don't think I finished it. Um, um, the bits that I liked, I liked, I liked that the relationship he has with his father. Um, I thought that was really sweet and nicely done. And I like, like Joe said, I like Pavel, the disturbed cat who just sort of like, (laughs) (laughs) has, has his own room and is, sees his visions that nobody sees. I could relate to that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I think, uh, the rest of it, I, it's sort of like, I, I don't know that, you know, like the whole, it's quite specific in the, like, the weirdness that it has and also in sort of like, you know, like the whole band metal scene and the wrestling scene. And I feel yeah. like it, it's, it loses me a bit there because sometimes the stories will go off in, uh, you know, into sort of like the technicalities of that or like having, you know, and just sort of like the assumption that you know that you're already aware of like band culture or things like that and you know I don't and it doesn't really do anything to sort of like attain your interest you know and make that sort of relevant to the reader in any way or why you know why you you're seeing that Mm -hmm. um and I didn't yeah I don't know it felt yeah it just felt really specific in a way that you know like it's I don't know that it's trying to be a niche. You know, sometimes like alt comics feel like, oh, how can I alienate as many readers as I can? And you know that that that's this is what's going to make me sort of like special because only two people understand my comic. Um, <laughs> and it didn't feel like aggressively so, but but it also you know like I don't know, it doesn't feel it. It was sort of like treading this middle ground, I think, and I think that's sort of led to like an unevenness in tone. But yeah, I mean, I didn't hate it, but I don't think it's really for me. Um, it's interesting, uh, from talking to Ed during him, uh, one of the things he was concerned about is the fact of, of um, how he had a big concern about how straight audiences would take in comparisons to, to queer audiences. Um, and so I think he's trying to make attempts to not be so deep in in that like minutia of the San Francisco queer scene, um, but maybe it's not super clear. But I don't think it was so much about the queer scene. The, the bits where it lost me was just, you know, about all the music. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like he goes into a nightclub and obviously they're all talking about like really liking this, you know, band or that band. And then obviously they all have like these interpersonal relationships within the band. And it was a, I felt like it was a lot about music and I'm not really into music at all. And I, I just didn't understand like the complexities. Or, you know, I felt like some jokes were being made and I didn't get them. <laughs> um, that sort of thing. Like, I didn't, like, yeah. 
It had nothing to do with like the gear, I suppose. <laughs> um, the the next book we have, if everyone's good with moving on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is um staying on the Canadian kick of uh Joe talking about uh, Dave Sam, um from Drawn and Quarterly, uh Michael DeForge's uh hard first year healthy. Yeah, um another fantastic entry from one of Canada's best. Um, I'm always excited to see a new comic by Michael, and uh, does not. You, you know, my, you know, Michael DeForge has had cultural impact because until a year ago, I didn't know what a butter tart was. <laughs> That's an East Coast thing. Just putting it out there. Okay. Not completely Canadian. <laughs> we don't care about butter tarts on the West Coast. <laughs> um, Zainab, that was one of your picks. Um, tell us. Why? Some thoughts on it? Yeah, I think it was um, one of the first books I read this year. And also, I think it was the first Michael DeForge book I read. Um, I think one of the things with Michael DeForge is that he puts out quite a bit of work. And then also he has like loads of people sort of saying how brilliant he is. And sometimes that can intimidate me a little bit in sort of like... I get quite affected by what people say, so I'll come to... I'll come to work with like preconceptions of this is going to be really good or you know you sort of like have an anxiety about is it going to be good will I understand it what if I don't like it as much as everybody else or um not not in a sort of like strident way but just in sort of like you have preconceived notions um which can affect your reading of it so um yeah it was the first thing I read and it's not strictly I don't think like a traditionally panel comic it's sort of um it has a bit of prose and each page is obviously illustrated and weirdly enough, it's also, I think it was initially a webcomic. Um, it's sort of like a Christmas parable about uh, a young woman who's had a mental health episode of some kind, um, a quite public one, and then she gets put into an institution. And this is about when she's sort of like trying to assimilate back into society and nobody really wants to know her. So she has this new outsider status and um, she ends up getting together with an illegal immigrant, a Turkish illegal immigrant. And just sort of like the isolation and stigma that she faces and how that leads her to sort of, um, she's trying to form some kind of stability, but because she's shunned in this way, um, it appears that she's sort of gradually extending further and further into um, her mental illness. Although it's not, it's not fully clear whether that is what's happening or whether it's just sort of like, you know, treading that line between like fantasy. Uh, I like that it's left open-ended in that way. But yeah, I really liked it. I, I like him. I think I read some more of his prose stuff and I think he writes prose quite well. It's sort of really specific and it has this sort of like clipped cadence. It's quite rhythmic. Um, you know, when I read it, I feel like I'm reading it the way it's supposed to be read and there's a particular way that it's supposed to be read. And it gives it like a tone, um, and I like the way he's drawn. His drawings are here as well. They sort of feel they feel quite neat and ordered, as if again like there's an, you know everything has its place, um, but they can feel quite visceral as well in terms of the impact that they have. Like there's a drawing of a baby. Um, I think it's not supposed to be it's sort of like in a womb like structure um, surrounded by twigs and these really sort of ripe berries which sort of just look like blood clots 
um, yeah, I really liked it. I still think about it, and I always like books that I, I, I find myself sort of like mulling over afterwards. I think that's sort of a sign of an interest book. Um, yeah, I'm interested to hear what everybody else saw of it. Yeah, I uh, I think back pretty frequently, and I can't um, quote the line exactly, but there's a line where she's kind of wandering around in the snow after a violent episode, and she or the narrator thinks something like, you know, when a problem like this happens, everyone is sympathetic the first time. When it happens again, they're just going to fucking write you off. And yeah, yeah, and that's so on point. Yeah, I, I think about that quite a lot, actually, that, uh, that notion, but... Um, yeah, like you know, like we we we've been talking about you know crime ish or thriller comics that sort of exist in the means of a television show. Like, okay, first year healthy is now the other side of the coin, where it's sort of uh, DeForge getting into kind of a thriller thing, and that there are thriller aspects like mysterious criminals and uh, a violent killing, and uh, you know maybe some smuggling going on somewhere in the background. But it's actually pretty much you being locked into the point of view. Not that it's you know a first-person point of view perspective, but the uh, the surroundings are just awash with the perspective of this uh, rather disturbed woman who's trying to get along with her life and uh, sort of, you know, she, she's very, very much permeable by what's happening. Like when she's told by her new boyfriend about like, you know, uh, a myth about a, uh, a magic cat that appears when you set food outside the door to bring you goodwill, you know, the cat appears and sort of becomes a continuing motif through the book that sort of, uh, I, I think, you know, it, there's a lot of different interpretations, but I think sort of, is her internal potential, her belief that things are going to go all right for her, even if they don't, even if the, uh, you know, what concrete aspects of the plot you can make out sort of suggest that she's maybe not going to be okay. Uh, it's sort of her belief that things are going to be all right that overrides the reality of the situation. I, you know, I, I, I just think there's a very, there's very much a hardness and a pragmatism to the story that I don't think, uh, really gets talked about a lot in dealing with Michael DeForge, but he could be a fucking mean and nasty writer, man. I mean, especially the more recent lose, like myself as a child. Uh, if anyone's read that story, oh my god, that, that, that that's almost like Neil LeBute level, uh, just a nasty protagonist just acting out of, out of this, you know, floridly psychological sense of self-rationalization and self-justification done in you know, an extremely detailed and visceral manner. There's, you know, this 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 really hard, you know, anthracite center to a lot of DeForge's work. I mean, there, there uh, if there's any real, like, you know, through line to DeForge's work, which is probably a ridiculous pursuit because there's just so much of it and he's so uh, prolific, it's sort of this this struggle with the muck and the grime of the world and an effort to sort of bring order to it and find uh, empathy in this world uh, that manifests in both the sort of uh, fake, uh, almost Peter Greenaway-like fantasy uh, uh, taximony that he brings to things like the spotted deer, or, you know, just these uh, visions of grotesque evolution that happen throughout Luz uh, that often bring their characters to ruin or close to a state of ruin, but there's always sort of characters there who want to believe that things are going to get better and when we come through this evolution we're not going to be monsters we might look like monsters but we're going to be better people because of that i think that's sort of the, the message michael deforge is bringing canada and the rest of the world and i think that's 
quite strong and first year healthy, uh, done through both, um, you know, the form of a comicsy illustrated prose thing, and also, you know, a fable, also a crime story. It brings a lot of things together in a way that I think is so completely particular to Michael, and I think, uh, you know, valuable in that way. I really, really like the book. Yeah, I, I really, really like it. I think, and I think, like, the ending is just sort of like, like you said, it's sort of like, I don't know whether it's hopeful, but it's sort of like ruthless at the same time that, you know, she yes. finds she's not able to find acceptance within, you know, her social circle or, you know, her village or whatever. But the the inference that I got was, you know, she finds it in her mental illness. That's where she finds, you know, the snow as a cleansing place and, you know, the rebirth of the child and going off with the cat and everything. It's sort of like, that's where she finds escape. And yeah, and it's... It's not that that's necessarily a good or healthy ending even or, you know, but it's because we're so locked into her perspective where we're just made, we're just convinced to believe it is because we're so, you know, suffused with her. Yeah. Tom, curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I don't got any. I'm done. Okay. Um, I, mean, I, I, I honestly, I don't, I don't remember this one. Um, <laughs> I came from the lamp shop. I don't have any. I didn't get to prepare this morning. Um, but uh, you know, and I read so much. Michael, I just read his last, his latest one last night. I kind of remember the story in that I remember thinking that that I, and I, but someone already said this that it's kind of a, a progression away from his. I mean, the cliche about him is that he deals with body horror physical horror and that this was more concerned with mental state uh than than that kind of thing that he was known for in the past you know i also have a thing with him where it's i don't i don't quite get him and i i I almost almost fundamentally to the point at which i just kind of don't want to interact with him as a critic for a while until he builds up like a like just a huge 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 body of work or does something that seems like a lightning bolt in the context of his work. And I, you know, I haven't done that with anyone since, uh, Deitch maybe where I just didn't understand what was going on and had to read 300 pages or, you know, like really sit down with and make a project of it. Um, so I, I'm a bad one to ask about, about Michael DeForge. Um, I do wonder, and I don't know if this is something you can ask. I mean, the, the, Usually, when you get to Michael's age, like usually when there's at Michael's age as an artist, um, with that previous generation of cartoonists, there is um, a shift or a change or a big book or something. And I, you know, the the market doesn't ask for big books in that way anymore. Not really. And I, I just wonder, do you, I mean, is there? Will he undergo that same process, or is this the Michael DeForge we get, period? Like, is this, are we going to get variations of this, or is there some place he goes from here? Is there a, is there a, is there what we used to call a big book from him, or is that just like a fundamental misunderstanding of what he is as a cartoonist? Boy, I, I don't know if I can answer that. I, I do think that's kind of, the, that actually is the situation Kim Deitch was in for a long time before Fanagraphics really started, Fanagraphics and Pantheon really started getting down with collecting these things. But I, I don't think that's really an applicable situation anyway, because Michael does get stuff collected 
pretty much when it needs to be collected. He has a lot of work down there with Drawn Quarterly and uh, Koyama Press. Um, I don't know. I, I, I wonder about Michael in the context of uh, web comics, in the context of Tumblr, particularly in that he doesn't work in like extremely long form serialization at all. But I think you can follow artists, or I think people at least are amenable to following artists. Like, you know, whenever they have a new comic that drops, you know, I'll just, I just know the name. I'm going to follow it along. I mean, that's how Lisa Hanawalt did it. That's how uh, Kate Beaton did it. I mean, Lisa Hanawalt, you know, did you, facts are facts. Lisa Hanawalt really had a big jump when uh, the BoJack Horseman television show came out, too. But I think, you know, she was still pretty popular as a cartoonist, and she did these, you know, small comics that kind of came out in books every so often. Kate Beaton still does that. And so I think, you know, I, I, I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know what the future lies for this particular approach to comics, you know. I, I could say, you know, maybe it's like, you know, the underground press or gothic blimp works or something. But, you know, if it's going to get collected these days, it's going to get collected anyway. So I don't know, Tom. I'm, I'm going to punt on this, you know. Well, you know, another, another cartoonist I have, I have had some difficulty in my latest project with this, and I, you know, I, I'm not a natural reader of comics. I'm not like a natural critic, uh, period. But I, you know, I, the the guy that I'm struggling with right now, are kind of trying to come to, it, it has some of the same issues, which is Bill Griffith. Who oh yeah, we're having out here as a um, guest for the, and you know, and I think just one of the reasons is that it's just not a. a it's not even the, a popularity narrative, but it's a publishing narrative or an artistic narrative that I under, that I can that I get or that I understand. Which is weird in Bill's case because I do kind of understand it with other cartoonists, but in Bill's in Bill's case, it's just he's just been consistently working on Zippy all of this time. Now he has a new work, which has kind of led me to go back and reconsider Zippy. And of course, Tales of the Toad is the greatest comic of all time. But I, you know the. Or at least one of the of the underappreciated great undergrounds. Let's just say that. <laughs> but I don't I, I don't know what it is with Michael, and I don't it may be, maybe maybe I don't have the background to kind of naturally understand what he does artistically. But I don't, I, you know, I just don't. I you know I I know that it's accomplished, and I know that I react to certain elements of it. But I'm just not sure that I'm I'm not sure that I understand where he's going yet. Um, and and, I, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm kind of naturally, um, yeah, I just don't have a good answer where he's concerned. I do remember, li I like most of his works. I do remember liking that one, but without taking a look at it again, I couldn't tell you how that one was distinguished from the others. I, th I think the, the kind of the exciting thing about Michael is, yeah, he's going to change. And, I mean, we've been, there's what, seven, eight issues of Lose now? I can't remember. But the constantly changing style, constantly changing um, what he's doing with his comics, uh, for me at least, and I can't predict where he'll be in a year because he hasn't stayed in a particular way for a year. Honey, why? 